Do pitchers who add new pitches in spring follow through in the regular season? I'll ask Jason Collette from Rotowire next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 3rd. It's show number 20 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire, discussing pitchers with new pitches, making roster moves, player assessments of Jackie Bradley Jr., Jake Odorizzi, Emilio Pagan, and Jose Quintana. Hitters whose weighted on-base averages lag their expected weighted on-base averages and his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including injuries to A.J. Pollock and Fernando Tatis, as well as other National League player news, and Jock Thompson. We'll be here with news from American League players, including Corey Kluber and Malik Smith. I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about early playing time gainers. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston outfielder Jordan Alvarez. And in weekend pitcher matchups, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at three weekend matchups, including a marquee tilt with Zach Greinke in Colorado to face Herman Marquez. And in Master Notes, I'll be giving the April Fantasy Quiz. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Thursday really was Thor's Day. We gotta talk some baseball. Thursday really is named for the Norse god of thunder, and it really was Thor's Day when Noah Syndergaard faced the Reds this past Thursday at City Field. Syndergaard threw a complete game shutout. He struck out 10, walked only one, and allowed just four hits. But what really made the day was how the Mets scored the lone run they needed for the 1-0 win. They got a solo home run. Yes, from Noah Syndergaard. Leading off the third against Reds starter Tyler Molly, Syndergaard smashed a home run at 106 miles an hour, according to StatCast, sending the ball 407 feet to the opposite field, no less. It was Syndergaard's second home run this season and his sixth career big fly, tying him for second place in Mets history with the illustrious Tom Seaver and just one behind franchise leader Dwight Gooden. Nice company. This is nothing new for the 2019 Mets, we should point out. New York starters have hit four home runs already this season, tying the franchise season record after just 31 games. There's only one word for it. Amazing. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette, from Rotowire. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Been a while. Yes, it has been, but thanks for having me back. How are you doing? Uh, really well, actually. Thanks for asking. Uh, how many teams do you have this season, Jason, and how are you doing so far? Mm, let's see. Touts, Labor, TGFBI, uh, like seven, and my highest uh, good news, I'm not in last place in any of them, but I'm also not in first or second in any of them either. So, uh 
I overcommitted myself again this year, but overall, I, you know, slow start like a lot of baseball players <laughs> around the league, but we're getting there. Have you noticed any common themes uh, that have been affecting all of your teams, uh, common players, common slow starts, common fast starts, anything along those lines? I, honestly, I think the thing that's impacted all of us that we didn't really account for is the ball this year. I mean, we're, we're on pace for a, a record-setting home run pace. I mean, the 6,105 is the previous high season total. Um, and the way I'm looking at the numbers, that's going to be surpassed. My birthday is September 20th. I think we break that record league-wide before my birthday and that we're closing the year close to 6,500 home runs. And that's what I didn't account for. Uh, I, I, could see, I see my numbers suffering a little bit in the power area and some of the pitchers that I took a chance on that I wouldn't have taken a chance on had I known the ball was going to be like this. You know, this said, you know, right now, you know, we can look at day, you know, year year by year averages, which are per game averages. So we talk about 2017, the record setting year that was 1.26 home runs per nine, per nine innings. This year, it's 1.31. That number's been up as high as 1.33. Uh, so it, it's come down a slightly here in the last week, but that number was holding steady at 133 throughout uh, you know, throughout April. And then uh, here towards the end, it's come down a little bit this week as it's been a little quiet on the power front this week, maybe because of all the moisture uh, in the air and the rainouts and such. But it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. But right now, that's really been the biggest impact um, on my team because, again, on the pitching side, some guys uh, are, are, are paying for the new baseball. I'm wondering about the the management uh, in season of this new trend. Uh, none of us saw it coming, or very few of us saw it coming. I've talked to people in uh, various leagues since the start of the year, and as soon as it became apparent that we had something going on with the baseball, with the uh, sudden surge in home runs, especially home runs on a rate basis per plate appearance or per 600 plate appearances, whatever your metric is, it's definitely up. And then the question is, we didn't. none of us saw it coming, so what can we do about it in season? Uh, you know, it, it just really depends on your chances and matchups. I think you have to pay uh, pay closer attention to matchups. You know, we'll we'll talk a little more about matchups later. But you know, I looked at this week. Uh, I, I carry both Jake Odorizzi and Michael Pineda uh, in Tout Wars, and I carry Odorizzi in a number of leagues. And with a matchup against Houston and at Yankee Stadium. He's been somebody that I've just left in my lineup all season. He's somebody that I targeted. He's I've been happy with the results so far. But you know, that's a pitfall matchup and we've seen it play out both ways it worked well for the Rizzi and then Pineda got bombed last night so it's really and but again both those guys have been in my lineup all year long in, in AL Tout Wars but I really take a, a closer look at the matchups and when in doubt I lean towards benching guys right now and that's really the best way I can think of uh, to manage that because you know the guys that haven't had gopharitis in the past uh, have it this year you look at a guy like Jared Eikhoff, who has, has struggled with home runs throughout his career this year, has allowed none. I mean, explain that one to me. So it, it's just those things you have to keep. You have to keep looking at, at matchups, seeing how the guys uh, pitching, and uh, and trust your gut from there. Yeah, I've been uh, noticing in the three leagues that I play in that. I kind of feel like my aces are still my aces, and I'm going to run them out there all the time. Uh, Trevor Bauer I've got in tout. I've got uh, Verlander in a league. These kind of guys, I'm just going to pitch them every every time because I need the innings, frankly, because uh, we all have innings minimums, and you've got to reach the minimum somehow, and you can't do it with 70-inning relievers. 
but I'm noticing that guys that I would have been starting like 99% of the time are now guys I'm starting 70% of the time and guys I would have been streaming, I'm now streaming really much less often because I'm scared to death of all these home runs and, and uh, you look at the opposing team and the park and uh, sometimes you just got to say, I'd like to have this guy out there because I could use the innings, I could use the co- other counting stats, strikeouts and I just can't afford the risk. That's that's exactly right. I mean, we, it gets harder to fix throughout the season. So just getting into that good habit now of sitting down and being more critical about these things uh, will set you up for success later on. If you just keep writing this off as early season struggles or uh, you know whatever, there's something's going to change with the ball. You've got to get into that habit now and just build build towards that late season success. The home run situation the the ball situation is a universal issue for baseball why isn't it a case of the rising tide lifting all boats or or sinking all boats depending on whether your boat's got a hole in it or not if everybody's in the same baseball environment then why isn't this home run effect equally distributed and therefore relatively unimportant don't think talent is equally distributed. That's the problem. I mean, when we look at Baltimore, you know, Baltimore pitching staff has is leading the league in home runs allowed by a mile. Last when I looked the other day, they were up eighteen over every other team. Uh, you know, they're on pace to shatter records. I mean, the, the highest the highest home run allowed by a by a single staff. They're going to break that by Labor Day uh, at, at the latest. And when you look at when you look at staff-wide home run rates, the top eight in history are now in this season. The 2017 Cincinnati Reds were the previous high watermark, and they're already being surpassed by seven or eight teams this year alone. Uh, but it's just a matter of how talent is distributed. We, we have a lot of haves and have-nots in the leagues, and so the haves aren't really suffering as much uh, as, as the have-nots. You know, the number with Baltimore, if you combine the uh, home runs allowed by Cleveland, which we know is a very loaded pitching staff, Pittsburgh, which has a very talented pitching staff, and then Cincinnati, who has had talent, and then uh, the input. I believe last time I was on, I talked about the the, the effect of Derek Johnson and his, and his pitching coach style. If you take the home run allowed by those three teams at the bottom, they equal what Baltimore is allowed at the top. I mean, that's the kind of talent distribution we have right now, where people that are, are, are doing what they can to uh, to change pitchers are getting results and then in Baltimore who just this off season acquired you know expanded their analytics department they got Mike Elias from the Astros to run that club and, and change takes time you can't change everything overnight but Baltimore was was truly running an old school house where they didn't have uh, the analytics department they didn't have this giant group of resources like these other teams do and so they're trying to do all this at once but you can't flip an entire roster like that so they have out there what they have out there and they're just getting banged around so as far as what we can do as fantasy owners jason should we now be really putting a premium on ground ball pitchers high ground ball pitchers and avoiding fly ball pitchers in our trade negotiations looking through the free agent pool that kind of thing or is uh, is there anything we can do to manage it 
Um, I would try to look at guys that are good at uh, creating weaker contact. I mean, ground ball pitchers. We, we've seen this before. If we think back just to five years ago, you know, when the when the the Red Sox won their first World Series of of this particular decade, that's what they did. They went out. You know, the strike zone was being, and they talked about this on the uh, Effectively Wild podcast last week. But they, you know, they um, they talked about how the Red Sox went out and grabbed Ryan Hannigan and another catcher that was good at flaming. Uh, framing low strikes, and then they went out and acquired Rick Porcello, and they went out and got pitchers that that functioned well in the bottom of the zone. Well, the next year the league changes everything, and those guys got banged around. So, uh, you know, what happens if if suddenly the league, the producer of baseballs, they realize, okay, these things really are Super Bowls. Let's try to change something, and they change the baseball in season, and we're running around trying to adjust to the comment, the current reality. And what if that reality changes? Then what? I mean, now we have now we've sacrificed strikeouts for ground ball pitchers because those rare unicorns that are high ground ball guys and high strikeout guys are tough to find. But if you're willing to take a chance, you know, like one of the reasons why I went and got Jake Odorizzi, he still gets strikeouts. Yes, there's there's been a risk, but I was maintained the risk was how his manager just left him out there to take a beating third time through the order, something that Rocco Baldelli has has not done as often as Paul Molitor did. So uh, that's my fear is we're reacting to something where that could quickly change. An interesting point you make about Rocco Baldelli, and uh, he's just the latest in kind of what we might call the new wave of field managers in baseball who are a lot more accustomed to and aware of the metrics that can be used and more comfortable applying them. Uh, anybody else you're seeing in Major League Baseball this year so far, Jason, who's managing on the field, who seems to be doing a better job of, of observing those kind of analytics and using them intelligently to make rostering decisions, pitching change decisions, those kind of things? He stood out the most just because I have the a vested interest in, in what he's doing because uh, I have a couple of, of the pitchers in the bullpen. I think I've been I've been impressed with Chris Woodward what he's done uh, in Texas. They're they're playing rather well. So you know those are two recent hires that have that are working out really well. But it's just about how you synthesize the information given to you. You know all thirty teams are giving you something to play with, and even the players will mention it. Uh, it's just a matter of are you going to use it? Are you going to ignore it? Um, and I think you know, obviously when you're new on the job like Woodward and Baldelli are, uh, you want to make a good first impression and get out there and use it. And, and so far they are. And you, you can see, I see it more with Baldelli, how he's managing his pitching staff. And that's the entire staff. I mean, the way they're managing the bullpen has been completely different from what we expected this year. And yeah, I mean, they're using a guy they grabbed off the waiver wire as their primary closer. A guy that the Angels probably would love to have back and Blake Parker, but that's what they've decided to do. And I, none of us saw that coming, but they saw something and, and and turned it that way. And then Woodward is, I think, his impact really has been on on how the team is manufacturing its runs uh, and 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 being more aggressive on the base pass versus his predecessor who liked to play small ball. You have a long-standing connection with Tampa, and they have a reputation now, richly deserved, I might add, for being a really with-it organization. They seem to really know what they're doing out there. And last year they had this experiment, you could call it, with the opener. I haven't really noticed, are they doing it again this year, or are they doing anything else that we should be taking note of uh, because they're such a smart organization? Well, the thing, The thing with the opener last year, it was, you know, it was something that they had bantered about for a while, but the opportunity 
presented itself when three-fifths of the starting rotation went down with injury right about the same time. Archer had an issue, and then you know, Blake Snell had an issue, but they, they ran out of guys to use. And not only was this problem at the major league level, it was also at the AAA level. So they really were like, okay, this is our 40-man roster. What can we do? And it was just a matter of, hey, you want to try this thing out? And that's how it worked. And then, you know, those of us who were able to grab Ryan Yarbrough, you know, I did nail Tout last year. He led my staff in wins, and I picked him up as a, I think, a $4 pitcher the, the, week, uh, the week he came, uh, came up to the major leagues. And so, you know, they're doing it again this year to a point. Like last, uh, on Monday night, Yanni Chirinos was supposed to be the starter, and then they switched to Ryan Stanek, and then they brought Chirinos in to, to pitch the next round. And, you know, when you look at that, the Kansas City lineup, you've got Whit Merrifield right off the top of the, the right at the top, followed by Mondesi, uh, followed by, I forget, Alex Gordon hits fourth. I'm, I'm blanking on who's hitting third. Uh, in that lineup, but they thought it made sense to use Stanek there, uh, and it did. I mean, he came in and did his job effectively, but that's real. They're using it once or twice, and they, they had to use it back to, in fact, they had to use it in three consecutive games when Blake Snell dropped his planter on his foot or whatever that thing was, um, that broke his pinky toe. Uh, you know, they had to use it in three consecutive starts two starts against Kansas City and then the opening against Boston uh, in that home series where they dropped two of those three games. So it's not something they absolutely want to do all the time, uh, but last year the, the need uh, necessitated it. This year I think the two things that stand out is, one, the aggressiveness in which they're using the rookies. We just saw, uh, I mean, they obviously signed Brandon Lau to that long-term deal before the season started and have been using him at the top of the lineup a lot. And then they just called up Nate Lowe, uh, and again, th- these spellings are the same way. So Lau Low, you got to get used to it here. But they just called up Nate Low out of nowhere, uh, and it looks like he's going to stay up. And so, you know, that that's so anti-Tampa Bay to be this early with rookies. But they see the opportunity this year um, with this hot start that's presented itself. And in the back end of the bullpen, you know, you, coming into the season, you thought it was going to be Alvarado and Castillo, and and then. You know, Chaz Rowe was so good last year with the slider, but Chaz Rowe can't find his release point this year and is all over the place. But Emilio Pagan has stepped up and so, um, and even stepped up with a new pitch. And that's really where I see, and the way they're using those guys, all three of those guys have saves. Uh, Alvarado still leads the club in saves, but he hasn't had a save in over a week because Castillo and Pagan have picked him up. And you listen to Kevin Cash and he talks about, it's about when the matchups appear in this game. And if we've got lefties coming up in the eighth inning, I'm not going to hesitate to go to Jose Alvarado. It's not what you want to hear as an Alvarado owner, but it's what you should have expected coming into the season. It's why, like, I rostered him for 14 in Tout Wars because I expected him to get 75 to 80% of the saves for the team. I still do, but it would have been nice if he could get more, but that's not his, that's not. Kevin Cash's managerial style. He is not old school and and just going to sit there and wait for the for the team to have a lead in the ninth inning to use what he feels is his best reliever. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from RotoWire and Jason. Uh, we both play in the American League. Uh, Tout Wars League, and uh, trading season started early, I think, this year. You pulled off a trade with Mike Podhorzer. You traded first baseman Tyler Austin to Mike, and you got back relief pitcher Brandon Workman of Boston. What were you thinking uh, in making this deal? So uh, Tyler Austin was my very last acquisition uh, in the regular part of the auction at $1. I mean, when I looked at it in the offseason, I found that he was loosely comparable to C.J. Crone. Uh, based on contact, expected contact, the, the difference was, you know, 
Austin has a, a big hole in his bat, and he's always had a lot of strikeouts, and he's still showing that right now. But the power potential, I felt for a dollar was a strong play there. So I, I've had him on my bench. I use him one week. He's been sitting on my bench, uh, and I needed healthy pitching. I didn't have a healthy pitcher on my bench. I had drafted Michael Fulmer. Obviously, he's out for the year. Marco Estrada has been my, my shuttle guy, depending on matchups, but now he's out, and so I didn't have any pitching. And I mentioned earlier this week with the matchups for the Twins against the Yankees and Astros where I wanted those options, and so I looked and I said, okay, let me see what I can do here. I've got extra bat that I'm not using, and I need a pitcher, and so I looked through the roster, and then there's Mike with, uh, who had Cedric Mullins who needed to replace him and didn't have a bench guy. And so, but he had three healthy pitchers sitting on his bench, or actually he had two, and then he had one in his active. So in any negotiation, I like presenting two choices, both of which are appealing to me and letting the other guy choose. And in, in this case, I said, hey, you need to replace Mullins. You don't have a guy. I have Tyler Austin. He is playing every day in San Francisco. Um, and I would like a reliever, one of Brandon Workman or um, the – drawing a blank on the Kansas City guy that I like, uh, Jake Newberry, as like one of these two guys. And then Mike actually says via note, he goes, okay, I'll do it for a workman, but I can't believe how much time I wasted on a Saturday comparing these two guys. Like, I know he likes Newberry because he wrote him up in an article in, in Fangraphs talking about his path to potential saves in Kansas City, which is rather wide open given how bad that Kansas City bullpen is. Um, but the problem with Jake Newberry is his fastball is really hittable. I mean, he has to get ahead and then put you away with a slider, but his fastball, 2% swing strike rate, that's not going to cut it in, the bin as in a closer role either. But I took Workman, and then I put Workman right in my lineup this week. I already have Ryan Brazier from, the, uh, from uh, Boston, but I just wanted an option on those times when I have risky matchups. And what was left in the free agent pile wasn't very attractive because I knew I wasn't going to be able to, I didn't want to go out there and pay for Pagan and we could talk about that in a little bit, but uh, I, I just wanted some options. And so I did that. And then I also did fab Liam Hendricks. And so Hendricks and Workman went into my lineup this week and I took out both Oda Rizzi and Pineda. Is it common for you to be willing to trade with a guy who's neck and neck with you in the overall race? Some players are leery about dealing with somebody who's so close to them, uh, potentially helping out a guy who could be uh, battling down the stretch for a pennant with you. Yeah, I, I know that's that's something some folks put in play. I really don't. I mean, if if I can, it, at the end of the day, you want to have a trade that helps out both parties. And in this case, it, it really was. I mean, there was, I think when I looked through the rosters, I saw two opportunities where I could make a trade, but there, a lot of guys didn't have pitching on their bench, and that really was a limiting opportunity. I was looking for somebody, if I asked for a pitcher back, they could replace it without going into fab, and I believe it was his roster and Howard Bender. And Howard Bender was away in Nashville for the NFL draft all weekend, running it with the Sirius XM radio, so he actually just got back to me last night. Uh, and so, But Podhorzer just sent me a note Saturday afternoon saying, hey, I'm stepping out, but I'll take a look at this later and get back to you. Um, but again, I think, I think it's always good to propose two options that are both agreeable to you and let the other party make the choice because you've done your work, you've looked at it and said, okay, I can deal with either one of these and then put it in their hands. If they say no to both of them, then you're like, then there's no reason. There's no reason to go on for a trade negotiation because you've already presented two options they don't like uh, that that you like and they don't. So you're like, okay, you move on. But usually, when you give somebody those two options, more the more than uh, likely than not, they're going to choose one of them. 
It's a great negotiating technique, that's for sure. Uh, you spent $300 of your $1,000 of fab to acquire Michael Chavis of Boston, and so far the move has paid off for you. He started well. I think his OBP is above 400. He's flirting with a 700 slugging. Uh, I don't think either of us expects him to maintain an 1,100 OPS for the year, but he's got three homers, and he's uh, had a stolen base the last time I looked. It looks like you made a good call on Michael Chavis. What was your rationale for, for looking at him in the first place? You know, often I'm holding the bag in the middle of the year. Like, I'm sitting there in July, and I've got one of the, the three or four highest fab totals. Uh, and honestly, if you're not the highest at that point of the year, what's the point if, if the trade deadline is, is not as accurate as you think it is? Plus, you know, this year we don't have the whole waiver trade deadline, so all the trade action will happen before August 1st. So at least we have two months of activity that we'll be able to, to utilize these guys. But if I can make an acquisition now and I can get middle of April through the end of the season, then that's more, that's more beneficial to me. And honestly, with him, it was just watching his first major league at bat. He comes up in the ninth inning. He's facing Jose Alvarado, who's throwing 100 and balls moving all over the place. Uh, and Davis was not overmatched at all turned around 99 and hit it to dead center, and the ball was wiggling so much, Kiermaier had no idea what to do with it. It was hit that hard. But you just you watch Chavis and the quality of his at-bats. He is not up there. He's not up there pressing. He's not up there overmatched. Uh, he can turn on, the, turn on the heat. He can wait back on the breaking stuff. But I've just been impressed with, with how he's carried himself at the plate. And... The other piece of that is, you know, this Boston lineup has been struggling, but I don't expect it to struggle all season. We saw, you know, right now I just honestly think it's like World Series hangover. Um, but it, this lineup gets hot, and the way he's hitting, I don't see him losing his job if if Pedroia comes back. But you, know, you look around the, the diamond, perhaps he gets some time at third base because Rafael Devers has definitely struggled defensively, not not to jerks and profar levels, but not far behind him. Um, you know, J.D. Martinez is back, is barking already, so I think there's a home for Chavis to stay in the lineup throughout the season. And I, I just wanted to change things up and not be, not be so conservative with my free agent budget as I have been historically because, frankly, it hasn't gotten me great results. Uh, and so I've always been like critical of, t- of guys that have blown their money early. But, you know, uh, if, if, if they can get from five and a half months of stats, get more than what I get from somebody that I pick up in the middle of July, you know, that's a win. So I'm going to try this strategy this year and see how it works. You signed Jalen Beeks of Tampa with a last-minute bid increase to $53. Uh, what did you like about Jalen Beeks? This is about the same time last year that I picked up Ryan Yarbrough. I mean, Beeks is in that role. Yarbrough's in AAA right now, and Beeks is in that bulk role. Uh, and I needed another starter. I mean, and one of the things, one of the areas that I'm suffering in, in Tout War standings right now is wins. I think I'm, I'm 10th or 11th place in wins. Um, and so I, and that's with the two twin starters with Jay Happ is off to a slow start, James Paxton. Uh, you know, that's really my, those are my starters, uh, and so I've been running with four, four or five relievers uh, because that's that's how I drafted things. And I needed another starter. Well, on the free agent pile, as you know, in a deep league, they're just not there. Uh, but when I looked at Beeks, he had, he was just dropped the previous week by Chris Liss, and Beeks is somebody that I actually targeted in the auction. And I was I was in I, I think I had. I was out of pitcher spots when Chris threw him, and I was hoping to get Beeks in the reserve. So when he got dropped, I noticed that I took a, I took a look at last week's standings, and I was like, oh, okay, he's available, so let me go grab him. 
Uh, and so I had him as 33, and then I said, you know what, let me kick it up. And it's a good thing I did because somebody had been 36, so I would have lost him. Uh, but I just wanted that other another option there on my, again, on my bench, but somebody that I could possibly use in a bulk role. And when I look at this week, like the Tampa Bay has a doubleheader today against Kansas City, you have to figure Beeks is going to pitch in one of those games. Uh, a good opportunity to pick up a win. And if he pitches in that one, perhaps he pitches Sunday in Baltimore uh, as the bulk guy in that or a part of that and may get a win there. Another good opportunity. So for me, it was really just spitballing on the schedule this week. But again, looking for the Ryan Yarbrough of this year um, and getting him you know, on the cheap, uh, $5 and, and $100 league or 53 and 1000 uh, But now it gives me another option to use. And when the schedule presents good opportunities, I can take advantage of it. And that $36 bid was by Chris Liss, actually, who uh, previously had dropped that same player. And personally, I like knowing that guys wanted players back. Uh, the fact that Chris Liss, everybody in the league's a good player, but Chris is a past champion, and if he's interested in Jalen Beeks and you got Jalen Beeks, I think you have to pat yourself on the back because uh, you, you have to like winning a, a competitive, even a blind competitive auction against such a good player. Uh, also in Boston, you have a guy who has not been a success. Jackie Bradley's off to a wretched start. Is on bases, I think, barely over 200, and his slug is way underneath. How long can you afford to carry a guy like Jackie Bradley who's been a dead weight on your roster yeah well the good news is i've been carrying him on my bench for the most part so we've had five we're in scoring period six and he's been on my active lineup for maybe three of them i think two um but i've been carrying him on my bench this one this one's personally disappointing to me because i i was touting him and you know that's what we call it, tout wars. I mean, this was one of the guys I was touting all off season. I mean, this is what he did last year. If I'm trying to hang my hat on anything, last year heading in the Father's Day, he was hitting about buck a buck eighty, and then he made some changes and absolutely took off the rest of the year and, and carried that all the way through the postseason. Um, right now, he's he's struggling again, and I think it just comes back to everything else. Your league's doing something to you. You suffer. You adjust. And you you have the upper hand on the league, and then they adjust again, and it's time for you to adjust. And we have to see what's going to happen here. I think the good news for him, there's no other option uh, in Boston. Jackie Bradley's defense is still very good, and so they're going to leave him in the lineup. And it's not like they're going to call up Bruce Castillo or Gorky Fernandez to replace him in the field. This is this is who he is. I mean, they're going to they either have to bench him uh, or. DFA him, and that's not going to happen because what he did, what he did in the second half last year, is still very fresh. And that second half was from the end of June all the way through October, uh, so there's still a large sample size. But when you when you struggle like this, and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of guys struggle like this in the middle of the season. We just don't see it as much because they didn't start from a zero 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 baseline. But that's where we are with Bradley and it, anybody. It, Mike Trout could probably go 10 for 60 at some point in the season. Maybe maybe not Mike Trout, but most guys could go 10 for 60 at a point in the season. We're just not going to notice it as much. But if you start the season 10 for 60 or 10 for 70, it stands out. You mentioned that uh, you were on Jackie Bradley as a preseason tout. Do you feel a, a sense of duty or that you really need to put your money where your mouth is as an expert to get the players that you suggest other people should get? I do. Uh, if, you, if you look at my Tout Wars roster alone, Yadi Diaz, Jorge Polanco, Tommy Pham, Delano DeShields, uh, trying to think that 
Chris, uh, Chad Pender, Brad Hand, James Paxton, Ryan Brazier, those are all names that in one form or another I spent the offseason saying these are guys you should have in your roster. So about one-third of my roster uh, is, is guys, and if you look through my, and, and Oder, even Oda Rizzi as well, but if you look through my rosters on all my teams, you will see a pattern. You know, Every year I do bold predictions for 30 hitters and 30 pitchers at Rotowire. And if you take a look at my rosters, you will see them filled with guys uh, that I've said I really like, and you'll see guys where I say avoid them. You won't find those guys on my roster. Uh, and so, yeah, I am one of those guys who believe that because I, you know, my draft prep is also my writing prep. I, I turn that into that. And I, when I walked into my last home local league this year, they were talking about my Tout Wars bids. I'm like, great. So here goes my – everybody knows my auction strategy at this point because when I walked in, they literally had a printout of the Tout Wars, and they were looking at it saying, hmm, Jason likes this guy, Jason likes that guy, and uh, made for fun draft. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not shy about saying uh, talking about who I like, who I don't like, but also putting my money where my mouth is. You mentioned earlier Emilio Pagan in the Rays' bullpen. I spent uh, pretty heavily to get him in the uh, last go-round through the uh, transactions. Uh, I think I spent almost $200 out of my 1000 uh, what chance do you think Pagan has to push his way into more saves? He had three in the week uh, that made him an interesting target. But, of course, three, three in last week's uh, run doesn't help me in this week's run or the rest of the season. But did I make a good choice here? I, I'm not seeing a good path, and I'm not saying this is the Alvarado owner in the league. I'm just not seeing a path for him to get the double-digit saves. I mean, I think part of it, the first two saves this week were because Alvarado had pitched rather heavily in the Boston series. He needed a rest. I mean, they can't. you can't just keep using the guy in that kind of capacity throughout the season, and, and Kevin Cash is, is smart about that. And so the first two saves, that's what I saw. But then, you know, the third save, you're like, hmm, what's going on here? But then after the game, he talked about the fact that when he brought Alvarado in, getting back to my earlier point, he brought Alvarado in the eighth inning because I believe it was Benintendi, but there, there were some lefties in the Boston lineup, and he said, I brought Alvarado in with the expectation of a five-out save, but he needed 21 pitches to get the two outs in the eighth inning, so I wasn't going to take the chance, and with two righties, or at least a righty to start off the ninth inning, he brought in Pagan because that's Pagan's strength is is getting out right-handed hitters. Uh, and so that's where the third save came from. Uh, and so, again, I said earlier, I still believe Al- Alvarado got 75% of the saves uh, for the, the team's final total. But it's good that Pagan has presented himself as an option here because Diego Castillo has has been inconsistent. I mean, he got he got beat up in the first Boston series. That it has done better recently. But you watch Diego Castillo pitch, and there's a there's a lot of moving parts in that delivery. And sometimes the fastball goes where it needs to, and and sometimes it doesn't. The outing against Boston last weekend, I think he threw. 18 consecutive sliders, he recognized that, you know what, I don't have my fastball release point right now, so I'm going to go with sliders, and he was just slider, slider, slider. It was fun to watch, but even though the Boston hitters knew what was coming, they didn't get to him. And But Pagan, one of the things he's got, he's worked on a new curveball. You can go to his his, uh, StatCast page, and you can see the curveball showing up there, which is the night, because he's previously been fastball slider and that kind of profile leads you to troubles against lefties if you're a righty well if you can throw a good curveball it also acts as a off-speed pitch which helps offset lefties and so that increases Pagan's 
usability, rather, in the late innings. So you don't have to automatically pull him for a lefty as you would have had to previously. I mean, one of the things about Pagan, he's got a very uh, high spin rate fastball that rides up in the zone, which is nice, which is typical Tampa Bay profile. High fastball that rides up in the zone and breaking ball that dives out of the zone. Changing your eye levels, that's what they like to do. And they've added this curveball to Pagan's repertoire, and uh, so far it's working. He looks really good. He's had one bad outing this year, but other than that, he has looked really good this year. He has. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was looking at his platoon splits, and uh, the on-base percentage against is barely over 100 versus lefties, uh, under, way under 100 versus righties. So he does seem to have, have uh, made some adjustments that have helped him. Speaking of adjustments by Emilio Pagan, you retweeted a story about how Emilio Pagan changed his diet. He reduced the sugar, cut down on the carbs. Uh, I think he just stopped drinking soda altogether, which is not a bad plan uh, just in general. How much credence, though, Jason, do you put in these kinds of stories about lifestyle adjustments versus you know mechanical adjustments i like them i think they're more than just fluff I mean, personally you know there was a point a couple of years ago where i went completely paleo uh and it's i found i had i had more energy I and mean, can you imagine a, a baseball player benefiting for having more uh, for having more energy now the problem is i should have stuck with it because i i didn't and uh I probably need to go back to that, but you know, doing that, changing your sleep, sleep habits, and not trying to burn both ends of the candle, and making it a point that I'm going to go to bed at eleven and wake up at six, try to get seven hours of sleep. I used to be a guy that went to bed at one o'clock and woke up at six and did it habitually. Um, so I, you know, I've made some changes in my life that I've seen beneficial, and so anything that could help a player get get in better shape, get be more, uh, have more energy. It has to be beneficial. Uh, now, I think a lot of people will think back. Oh, what about Mike Napoli when he had his uh, he had sinus surgery, his adenoids taken out, or you know, he's not snoring as much. Maybe he's going to do better, and he didn't. It's not not saying it's a hundred percent success story, but people that take care of themselves. I mean, Liam Hendricks. We talked. I talked about picking him up. He went on the keto diet and dropped fifteen pounds this off season. He was another one. Uh, he's throwing a little harder this year too. So it's like, okay, maybe there's something there. But I do take a little bit of notice uh, to those stories, especially when we're talking about how a guy's going to hold up over the course of a year. If we're talking about guys that historically fade out, and but now they're taking better care of themselves and they won't fade out, that's something to, uh, to pay attention to. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from Rotowire. And Jason, you wrote on Twitter this week that you had Jake Odorizzi, we talked about him, in three leagues and benched him because of matchups. What was your concern with Odorizzi? And uh, again, how global is that going to be for you going forward? I mean, obviously, when you've had, if you've had Odorizzi in the past, you know the problem's home runs. Uh, and he, he, does, he lives up in the zone. I mean, his primary thing is fastballs, that riding fastball that he has up in the zone, and then the split change down in the zone. And if he hangs one, it's gone. I mean, frankly, I was most concerned about the matchup in Yankee Stadium. Had he been pitching in Minnesota for both of these games, I likely would have left him in my lineup. But going to Yankee Stadium, that was, to me, that was a a red flag. I mean, that team... I know it's mostly AAA guys at this point, but they continue to hit. I mean, Luke Voigt has just been amazing since coming from St. Louis. Uh, you know, Mike Ford comes up, hits well. Mike Talkman's hit well for them. And we all know pop-ups in Yankee Stadium become home runs, and that's really what scared me away here. But, you know, outside of that, I'd like I'd like how Odorizzi was I like how he's pitching this year and, and he's pitched you know I think the one game we can all think of is when he had the no hitter in the in the fourth inning and and I remember some 
Twitter, uh, some writers on Twitter snarking like, hey, why is the bullpen up in the fifth? What are they doing? He's throwing a no-hitter. And then the Twins gave up like 11 runs that inning, had some giant meltdown. And we're like, that's why. You know, we, those of us who have watched Oda Rizzi or owned him over the years know that those first two times to the order, good stuff. After that, it's up in the air. Uh, and you know, Baldelli didn't wait too long to make that move. But the guys he brought in afterwards, it just went downhill real quick after that. Uh, so that's really what it came down to. It's just that that Yankee Stadium matchup was just too scary for me uh, to touch. And after seeing how Pineda got blasted by the Astros last night, uh, I'm, I feel the move is validated for not starting him Yankee Stadium. But uh, I would love that seven shutout innings that Odorizzi hung on Houston. Yeah, I had Odorizzi last year, and it was sometimes a, a little frustrating to see him mold them down through two times through the order and then just get lit up the third time through. And in a perverse way, you're getting fewer batters faced uh, on occasion if, if his manager comes out and says, okay, you're done. But it's the smart play, and it helps the ratios, that's for sure. And I think we're going to see more of it as people realize it, that this is a source uh, in, in the major leagues, I mean. It's a source of innings. And it's a source of good innings if you just accept the fact that some of these guys just can't get that third time through and act accordingly. Uh, you posted a StatCast search, Jason, ranking hitters by how much their actual WOBA uh, lags their expected WOBA, and the inference being there's a turnaround bounce coming if a guy's way behind is expected. You said you were thinking of renaming this search the Kendris Morales search, and I assume he's always on the leaderboard. He is. I mean, it, last year, if you do a 2018 search, he had the he had the uh, the third biggest difference between his actual weighted on base average and his expected. Number one was Abraham Almonte, who's who was a part time player, not playing this year. Number two is Logan Morrison, who was mostly part time last year, it, currently in AAA with the Yankees. And then uh, so number three was Cole Calhoun, who is starting. Uh, and then then we have Morales, who was tied with Christian Vasquez. Uh, that's where you know, that's where it ends up uh, sitting. But Morales was there was is always high on, on this list because part of the problem is he does make really good contact, um, but he is overshifted and he hits into that shift a lot. So I mean, he's making making that contact and then hitting it. But the, the the defense his margin for error on batted ball fortunes is reduced because of the way the defense is positioned. Now if he was hitting the ball that hard down the other line, then it's one thing. But that's the problem. He he just has limited zones of where that ball is going to land if he doesn't hit it over the fence um, and so but he's he's always high in this list and i think that miguel cabrera is always high in this list because of triples alley in in detroit and cabrera park the way that park is structured there are uh balls that would be doubles in other places but are expected triples but let's be real miguel cabrera is only hitting a triple if the outfielders fall over um but the the way the the way the expected formula works, it's like looking at okay, that ball was hit that hard that far, that should be a triple. But it, it's the way Comerica Park plays out. That's not always. Uh, it's going to be a double. But Comerica Park exaggerates certain batted balls in certain places of the park. But it's a it's a leaderboard that I like to use, looking for opportunities to pre- present themselves. I mean, like if I had the opportunity, like Doug Dennis has Kendris Morales in Ailt Out Wars. I'm sure Doug is thinking, yeah, I'm going to hold on to him, especially after listening to this podcast, because this, I mean, this is about where Kendris Morales was last year as well uh, on this list. But it's a, it's a tool that I, I like to use to look for opportunity, both on the pitching and the hitting side. 
This raises a question for me, Jason, with regard to any kind of search where we're comparing real on-field metrics versus expected metrics, which are first or second order mathematical constructs. Uh, how many times does a guy have to turn up on a leaderboard from such a search, whether he's lagging his expected whatever or he's uh, way ahead of his expected whatever? If he keeps doing it over and over again, year after year, season after season, at some point, do we not just have to say, I don't know what it is with this guy, but this is who he is, and I, I just don't trust this this difference between real and expected? Yeah, we could probably call that the Dave Bush theory, right? You know, the guy who's ERA and FIP are always like, he's going to get better, and then he doesn't. Right, uh, maybe that maybe it comes down to to that point, but it's you know with it doesn't take. You know, I think I saw Tom Tango say something about this a couple of weeks ago. People always talk about the stabilization of of a, a statistical point, and I think the better phrase that he points out is we should call it the credibility of the number rather than the stabilization because there's always going to be variability, but the number becomes more believable um, at a certain sample size, and it doesn't take too long for some of these things uh, to get going. Like, I will point out, because it's something that I read the wrong way, but this time last year on May 1st, if you were to use that same expected minus actual leaderboard on StatCast, the number one guy on that leaderboard at that time was Matt Carpenter. So if, if I made the mistake of using that to validate that I told you that shoulder was going to be a problem. Here it is. It's a problem. I'm not getting on Matt Carpenter. Well, I missed out on a tremendous season by saying that I by using that data the wrong way, I should have looked at that and said, "Okay, look, he's still hitting the ball hard. He's not getting the results right now, but the context says there's a lot better stuff to come." And that buying opportunity was still there the second week of May. It was there, and if people took advantage of it, they got it. I I screwed up last year. I didn't. I used it to validate a, a preconceived notion, and I paid dearly for it. Just for fun, I flipped the results of your search. I just hit the little uh, column header to make it go top down rather than bottom up and uh the leader uh as far as guys who are overperforming their expected woba is mitch garver of the twins i have him on tout he's plus 178 points but i also saw tim anderson uh, this year's current what's he doing kind of eye-opener guy he was in 12th place on the list at plus 69 and i'm curious what you think of tim anderson's fairly sensational season so far he's batting close to 400 his on base percentage is over 400 of course he's got five home runs he's leading the league with 10 stolen bases uh, how much of what we're seeing this year from tim anderson do you think is for real and sustainable we always knew that he had the athleticism to do this. I mean, these, these are things that he did in triple in the minors all throughout. I think the problem what we have with Tim Anderson comes down to the fact that he still won't take a walk. I mean, he, he 2% walk rate this year. He's not accepting walks. And, yes, he, he can make a lot of con- 21% strikeout rate is about league average these days. So it's not, it's not terrible. It used to be like five, six years ago, oh, my God, he's striking out 21% of the time. Now it's like, meh. It's it's about what you expect, but that said, you have to you have to learn how to accept a walk at some point. I mean, right now he's he's on a pace to to like do what we used to get out of Alfonso Soriano back in the day with similar things. But I'm not ready to say that these two guys belong in the same class. I'm just concerned that he's becoming more impatient at the plate, and right now the early results are. It's hard to tell a guy to change when, when he has a 172 weighted runs created plus. He's 72% above the league average. It's hard to tell a guy, hey, start taking some walks. But at some point, this this kind of aggressiveness is going to catch up with him. But athleticism-wise, you know, he's going to play every day. 
I mean, he's got a, probably another 600 plate appearances coming into him. And you look at the you look at the numbers he's putting up. He he could have a very special counting category season, even if the batting average takes a giant tumble here. I mean, he's a guy that could go 10 for 70, as we were talking earlier um, here. But it, 10 for 70 is going to take us 375 down to 325. And you're still going to think, wow, this guy's still having a great year, but you're not going to see that 10 for 70 or that 10 for 80 coming. But that's the kind of slump a guy with this skills profile could fall into. What worries me when I look at, at Tim Anderson is they – I know the counting stats are going to be there as a result of the plate appearances, as you said, but I look at his fly ball rate, it's under 30% right now, or right around 30, I guess would be fairer to say, and his home run per fly ball rate is 26%, and that's high, and I know it could be a result of the ball, maybe he's one of the guys who's really benefiting from the ball, traveling just far enough extra to get him uh, off the warning track and into the seats, but it still seems like quite a bit too high. And then if you look at the walk rate is down to 2%, it was up to five last year. Do you remember? And everybody's so excited that finally he had figured it out and he seems to have abandoned that entirely. And if he, if he stops getting a, a 435 BABIP and, and so his, his uh, hits decline, his walks decline, all of a sudden his stolen base opportunities decline. And right now, when you look at it, he's kind of on a pace for a, at least a 40, 60 type season or a 40, 70 type season. I think there's a real risk here that he could really fall off a cliff. It could happen. You look, you look down at his plate discipline numbers. He is he is expanding his strike zone at a career high rate. I mean, you look at the the pitch info, forty five percent O swing. So uh, his previous high was forty three. So he's expanding his zone a little more. He's swinging at a higher rate than he ever has. But then he's being rewarded for this out of zone aggressiveness with the career-high contact rate out of zone two. That stuff plays itself out. I mean, a guy who's been a career 54% out-of-zone contact guy is at 64% this year. Yeah, how, how much is that going to hold up? See, that's that's where I get concerned. Everything always comes back down. I mean, you can get some um, in-season fluctuation around these types of things, but eventually it comes back down to what your established habits are, and we shouldn't let 100 plate appearances overrule overrule what we've seen from him over the previous 2000 or you know, 1600 plate appearances that he had from 16 to 18 100 plate appearances shouldn't change what we saw from those previous three seasons and i know somebody could argue with you and say well maybe he's doing things differently but i think your point is he's not doing anything differently if anything he's doing the things that we would expect a sustainable guy to be doing worse and when you mentioned that he's making more contact out of zone than he has in the past, and maybe that's encouraging him to keep doing it, but is it not a relative truism, Jason, that if you're making contact with a ball that's out of the strike zone, the chances of you making hard contact are greatly diminished? Yeah, the further you get away from the further you get away from the uh, the center, go back to the old Ted Williams. I mean, he, if you remember, Ted Williams made the graph where he he put the expected batting average of every single one by one inch in the, within the strike zone. And you can see where that is and how that gets worse. You go to certain places. I bring that up because I'm, I'm reading his autobiography right now, which is 700, or his biography by Ben Bradley, 771 pages. Giant, giant book. Should be like three books, but uh, he talks about that. And, you know, obviously, Ted Williams is one of the first people to talk about launch angle. He was 40 years ahead of his time, 50 years ahead of his time, um, maybe. But he was the first one to start talking about that back in the day, too. 
but yeah, expanding. It just you look overall, and he's not even. We're seeing it in some of these, but even his hard contact rate is right where it was last year. He's just he's being rewarded for bad behaviors right now. Uh, in, in Anderson, and that's that's my concern. I don't own him in any league. Not that I, he was he wasn't on my avoid list, but he, I only bring up Tim Anderson because that's why I thought that's the comp that I kept using for Mondesi this year was saying you know this is. This is what I think Mondesi could be. Everybody's drafting Mondesi. I saw him going into the third round. I was like, you guys are drafting Tim Anderson in the third round. And I, I, I would be worried about that. And you look at where Mondesi is right now, and you know he's, he's the speed-wise, he's, he's on track to exceed last year when he didn't steals. Power-wise, maybe. Um, but you look at last year at the same numbers. I mean, his, his on-base percentage is right in line with where it was last year. His plate discipline numbers right in line where things were last year. He hasn't. He's not showing that step up. That said, I mean, you watch him play, and I've seen him play six games now. I mean, the contact is still hard. He's, he's still impressive when he can hit a ball. He still makes the ball go quite a long way for a guy of his his size. But he hasn't shown. We're not seeing the improvement yet uh, right now out of him, and uh, we'll see where that goes. But I, I still maintain those two guys are really similar uh, in their comps because of their approach at the plate. Well, Jason, uh, this has been terrific so far. I'll let you take a breather so we can do a little business, get some player news. We'll resume in a few minutes if you're all right with that. Sure thing. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's begin in Los Angeles. The Dodgers put outfielder A.J. Pollock on the injured list. He has an infection in his right elbow. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. And Nick, I, I was the guest on a podcast, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational podcast this week. And one of the co-hosts of that show, Ruvain Guy, is a doctor. And he, we were talking about the A.J. Pollock situation, and he said it could be very serious because... Pollock apparently had plates and screws in his elbow from a previous procedure, and what uh, Ruvain said was these surgical appliances are always at risk of infection, which can be very difficult to root out once it gets in there. What's the situation here? Well, now, following an exploratory procedure, Pollock will reportedly undergo surgery to remove the plates and screws from his right elbow, uh, and there's no fixed date now for his return. Manager Dave Roberts was quoted as saying he expects Pollock to return this season, which is pretty open-ended and fairly ominous, I would say. Uh, we're being cautious now with just a 40% reduction in playing time, but owners should be planning for worse than that. 
Yeah, I thought that was a, an interesting way to phrase it, right? Uh, there's going to be, uh, he's going to be out for a number of weeks. Well, one is a number, a thousand is a number. You know, it's 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 like not saying anything, really. Uh, who gets Pollock's playing time while he's on the shelf? John Thompson reported that Alex Verdugo will take over as the everyday center fielder while Pollock is out. And through the first 70 of bats or so, Verdugo has looked very good. 88% contact rate, 333 batting average, 132 hard contact index with four home runs. Baseball forecaster called Verdugo a keeper league gem. He's just 23, has always played several years younger than his level, um, and has a good strike zone judgment, ability to make contact, so should be a batting average asset. Has a career uh, 309 batting average and more than 2,100 minor league plate appearances, so a solid a solid base there, but never been a home run threat. 11 home runs per 600 plate appearances in the minors because his approach has been to spray the ball all over the field. Uh, longer term, scouts believe he could reach 20 homers. He also has enough speed to contribute around 10 stolen bases. Minor league stats include about 11 stolen bases per 600 plate appearances, although he hasn't shown that level of speed so far in the majors. But they say 90% of success is just being there, and right now Alex Verdugo will be there in center field for the Dodgers. The team also recalled uh, outfielder Max Beatty from AAA. He'll be LA's bench outfielder, at least for now. Another injury, Nick, this one really disappointing. Uh, Super prospect Fernando Tatis Jr. of the Padres out with a hamstring injury. Uh, Jock Thompson again on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. This is a blow to the Padres and to fantasy owners. Yes, it is. Tatis was off to a great start, hitting 300 and notching six home runs and six stolen bases in his first 100 or so at bats. That's a 30-30 pace or even higher. All we know right now is the team says Tatis will be out for a number of weeks, uh, which, as Jock noted, isn't much to go on. For now, baseball HQ analysts have reduced the playing time by 15%, but that looks like an educated guess based on missing somewhere between two weeks and a month. So who's going to get the playing time in Fernando Tatis's absence? Manny Machado will move to uh, his left from third base and take over at shortstop. And back up infield of Ty France looks like he'll take over at third base. Uh, France has uh, had just 13 plate appearances this season, batting 167 with no counting stats yet, except for one run scored. Uh, France was a capable but not outstanding hitter in the minors, had a 282 batting average and just over 2,000 plate appearances but he did draw a lot of walks for uh, had his uh, his OBP was a healthy 379. But his career minor league slugging percentage is just a little higher than that at 437. And again, not a lot of counting stats. 51 home runs, 270 runs, 291 RBIs, and only 15 steals in 2,000 plus plate appearances. BaseballHQ.com is projecting France to pick up about 130 at-bats, relatively unproductive, 221 batting average, four home runs, maybe a stolen base. And it's one of those things, Nick, I think, where the projection of a stolen base is just to account for the possibility of a missed hit and run or something along those lines. Uh, In Atlanta, outfielder Ender Inciarte is off to a sluggish start. Alain de Leonardis covers the National League East for playing time tomorrow. That's a f- segment of BaseballHQ.com that's really useful because it looks ahead uh, division by division at what roster changes might be coming. Uh, what options uh, will the Atlanta be looking at to pick up for uh, Ender Inciardi if he can't get it turned around? Well, Inciardi at its uh, point is slashing 227, 303, 352 with eight runs and six RBIs and 88 at-bats. And those two home runs and three stolen bases are keeping him fantasy relevant for right now. Um, 
275 uh, expected batting average suggests he could bounce back in that category, but there really are other concerns. He's batting eighth in the order more frequently this year. Uh, that uh, unduly inflating his walk totals and capping his stolen base opportunity percentage. His uh, usually stellar defense uh, has been a real concern. It's crumbled. Uh, his own rating down for career 8.2, UZR 152 minus 6.0. And late last week, he left the game with an apparent hamstring injury. So with all of that, uh, I have to wonder how strong his grip is on the starting job, and that leads us to a second question. If Atlanta is looking for some kind of spark to, to uh, get Inciardi's slot be more productive, who might be stepping in? Well, so far, Ronald Acuna has stepped in to replace the uh, injured Inciardi in center field. Uh, Acuna is predominantly a left fielder. He's played five games in center field this year, had 13 games there in 2018, and he certainly has enough speed for center but it remained to be seen if the Braves would want him out there for an extended period. Um, if they don't, they have several. If, he, if they leave him in center, they have several options in left field. Uh, Johan Camargo uh, has started four of the Braves' f- first 17 games in left field. Uh, his line hasn't been much better than, than in Ciardi's. A 6-6-7 OPS, one home run, six runs, 10 RBIs, one stolen base in 59 at-bats. Probably more versatile, valuable as a super utility player, which is the way they've used him. Uh, so if the team were looking to make a more definitive switch in left field, they might want to look elsewhere. Um, Adam Duvall has been met raking at AAA, hitting 306, 388, 647. Seven home runs, 11 walks, 16 strikeouts, and 85 at-bats. Duvall has unquestioned power. We know that. 31 home runs in 2017, 33 in 2016 with the Reds. Had a down year last season. Uh, he seems to have tightened up his plate discipline this year, although in the minors. He could actually make some noise. Would be worth looking at, certainly if he, if he were brought up. Atlanta also has two young outfielders that are not in the 40-man roster but uh, have made fine starts in AAA. Rafael Ortega sports a 1.014 OPS with six home runs and three stolen bases in 88 at-bats. Uh, been more of a doubles hitter in the minors but walked more than he struck out in 2018 in AAA. Travis uh, Demaret is also exhibiting better plate discipline this year after repeating double A in 2018. He's hit as many as 28 home runs in a minor league season. Uh, if he can keep his 273, 364, 455 slash line, Demaret might finally get a taste of major league action this year. In Miami, I uh, remember Lewis Brinson was uh, a really hot player in spring training, and I think we may even have talked about it and reached the conclusion that whatever he was doing in spring training had to be deeply discounted. Well, sure enough, he's off to an extremely slow start in the regular season, uh, so bad that he's been demoted back to the minor leagues. Phil Hertz covers the Marlins for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So with Brinson back in the minors, opportunity's got to be knocking for someone. Who is it? Brinson had a disappointing rookie season in 2018. He's been worse in 2019. Uh, his batting average, uh, expected batting average was 190. Uh, PX was 64. Uh, given his pedigree and the fact that he was a key part of the return for Christian Yelich, he'll likely be back at some point in 2019. Uh, but it's really hard to recommend for rap fantasy teams to roster him at this point. Um, the the uh, the player that 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 they would hope could step in at this point is Garrett Cooper, who's been hurt for most of 2018 and 2019. Back in 2017, over 43 at bats, he had a 2.88 expected batting average and a 1.22 px. Uh, obviously, a small sample, but if you can approach those numbers 
over the long term, he would be of interest to most fantasy teams, obviously. But one last note regarding Cooper. First game back on the diamond on April 30th, hit on the hand and left the game. And as we speak, there's no report of the seriousness of that injury. Jig, always got to hate it when guys get hit on the hand. Uh, and it seems to be happening a lot these days, Nick. It does indeed. I, you, you don't know if they don't know, aren't smart enough to get the hand out of the way or what the deal is, but I'd sure get out of the way the way bones have been breaking lately. You know, I used to live in England, and uh, and I have a, a lot of friends from India, big cricket fans, and when a guy goes up to, to bat in cricket, they wear almost like hockey gloves, you know, big padded heavy gloves, and I wonder at some point why more major league hitters don't adopt this. They have such lightweight materials now that it seems like somebody could make a batting glove that had, you know, protection for the hands, and especially for the fingers, that would still allow a guy to get a good grip on, on the bat. I, I just don't understand why they protect their elbows, they protect uh, practically the entire leading edge of their bodies when they're in the batting box, but they leave their hands out there to be plonked and all they're wearing is thin golf gloves. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's one of those things you wonder why, why that, that has not been invented yet. Even something that could, could extend a little bit up the wrist and cover the wrist because a lot of, a lot of wrist injuries these days as well. Finally, Nick, uh, Batting Buyer's Guide columnist Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com had a piece this week about early plate control changers. These are hitters who are showing some gains in avoiding strikeouts and taking walks. And among bigger names like Cody Bellinger and Michael Franco is someone a little further under the radar, Cubs infielder David Boat. Yeah, Boat's been a great pickup for owners that speculated on him in, late in, uh, in 2019 drafts, a 7.15 ADP, so he wasn't on most folks' roster. Uh, put up, he's put up a 296 batting average, three home runs, 14 RBIs, and 54 at-bats. Uh, previously, shaky plate skills from 2018 have improved significantly this season. Walk rate is up to 11% from 9%. Contact rate has soared to 78% from 67%. Eye ratio has jumped to 0.58 from 0.32. These are very promising developments in plate approach for a, for a young hitter. Uh, just keep in mind, we can't expect the same power from Boat until he lost the ball more. Uh, batted ball profile shows 55% ground ball rate. And it's tough to hit home runs with that many balls on the ground. It is indeed. Uh, you don't even can't even really count on uh, inside the parkers, I guess, because uh, those tend to be line drives that get all the way to the fence and bounce around out there. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us. I'll talk to you again in a week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League News Beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We have some news in the American League. It starts with one of the more prominent pitchers in the league uh, going down with injury. Corey Kluber of Cleveland was hit in the forearm by a line drive. He broke the ulnar bone in his right forearm. He's going to be out at least until late July, maybe early August. Uh, I can tell you a bit more about that in a second. They're already down Mike Clevenger. He's out for the year. What's Cleveland going to do with uh, two of their top three starters on the shelf? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and I'm talking as a Kluber owner who, uh, uh, boy, what a year he's had. He hasn't helped my staff at all. Um, um, I looked at his numbers and thought he was right for a turnaround. His uh, swinging strike rate still looks pretty good. First pitch uh, first pitch strikes look good. Uh, with respect to what Cleveland's going to do, um, 
they've they really look top heavy in their rotation right now they've got Bauer and Carrasco and Bieber at the top and then they're going to depend on Jeffrey Rodriguez and and who else uh Cody Anderson uh, another name Asher Wojciechowski uh, none of those guys am I gonna gonna roster uh you know the problem with Cleveland it's it's not just their top heavy rotation and losing uh um Kluber and Clevenger of course it's their offense they've just become really anemic and uh They've fallen way behind uh, Minnesota now. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this. And from what I gather, you don't think much of Asher Wojciechowski or uh, Adam Plutko is a name I've heard, Cody Anderson. These are guys that Baseball HQ has projected for a few starts here and there to take up some of the slack. And uh, Jeffrey Rodriguez as well. Uh, are none of these guys of interest to you? You know, the most interesting name of them, just because of his bottom line results, is Rodriguez. But if you look at his... Uh, his strikeouts per nine innings and his swinging strike rate, uh, um, it's just, it's minuscule. I mean, the guy throws hard, but he hasn't figured out uh, a, a way to get batters to chase or swing and miss. So I get the feeling that that, that might be short-lived. Uh, the other guys are known commodities, and they're just not very good. Yeah, he had, uh, I think, eight starts last year. He only had a 6.8 strikeouts per nine dominance rate and he walked almost as many guys as he struck out which was a real problem he seems to have cut down on the walks in his two starts this year but the price of cutting down on the walks has been cutting down on the strikeouts as well so he's got a better uh, strikeout to walk ratio but his strikeouts are so low that they're really almost unplayable yeah and this is a guy with with good stuff again and and maybe he grows into it maybe he finds that swing and miss capability but he doesn't have it right now Tom Kephart covered the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com, and he said Wojciechowski has displayed uh, a higher dominance rate with some solid control. Uh, do you not buy that uh, analysis, or is there just not enough to go on? Yeah, it, to me it's just not enough. I'll, I will take a look at that based on what you're saying here, because I don't know enough about Wojciechowski, but I, I do know I've seen him pitch before, and he, he's never particularly impressed me. Over in Chicago, uh, bad news for their pitching rotation as well. Carlos Rodon, Tommy John surgery, elbow problems. Uh, Eloy Jimenez has got an ankle sprain, although that sounds like he'll be back shortly. Uh, the real issue here, Carlos Rodon, what are the White Sox going to do now that they're starting to lose guys in their rotation? Yeah, they're in, they're in a little trouble too. Um, a, a guy that you and I have talked about in passing, Manny Banuelos, who's a uh, a post-post type uh, prospect back-end guy now uh he's kind of a flyer on a bad team he's he's held his own uh, 422 er or i'm sorry 270 era 422 expected era um but a whip of 1.4 he's he's walking a lot of hitters uh not <laughs> you might take a flyer on him but on a real bad team like the white Sox, i'm not sure uh, an, another guy the white Sox have who's really tearing it up in triple a is prospect dylan cease he's a guy who uh has come a long way back from injuries. I think he's an ex-number one draft pick. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the White Sox call him up. But in a rebuilding year, I would think they might let him uh, um, get a little more time in AAA before they bring him up. And other than that, I don't see who who the, the, the number five starter is for the White Sox right now. I wonder if they might uh, start going with the opener model. They've got a fairly long list of those middle relief type guys who might be able to cobble together, you know, a, a two innings from one guy, three innings from a second guy, and then two and two or something like that to get through games. But uh, certainly nothing, if they go that route, there's nothing there that you'd really be interested in either, I suppose. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the Angels are doing a lot more of the uh, the opener stuff for the first time. Uh, just this past month, April, they've 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 done it a few times, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the White Sox tried it too. Um, when 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 you don't have starting pitching, you got to do something. Somebody's still got to be on the mound. In Seattle, they're off to a terrific start, but the terrific start did not bring along outfielder and super base dealer Malik Smith. He got off to a very slow start this year. I think his batting average was, uh, what, 165-ish and an on-base percentage of around 250, which is not getting the job done, and they demoted him. And this is a guy, Jock, I don't know about the drafts you were in, but I can remember Malik Smith going for the high $20 in some of the auctions I was in because people were so eager to get that stolen base potential. Uh, they may get it, but it's going to be in AAA Tacoma. So this is a pretty tough pill for fantasy owners to swallow. What does it mean for Seattle? Who's going to come in and take Malik Smith's uh, playing time? And what is the likelihood that Malik Smith comes back? A lot of questions. Yeah, really. Um, well, first off, the excitement about Smith has to do with those 40 stolen bases, obviously, and, and the fact that there's such stolen base scarcity, uh, the 40 stolen bases that he had in 2018. He also hit 296 and made 80% contact, which right now looks unsustainable if you look at his track record. And uh, it's like you and I were talking before the show. He reminds me of another guy, Delino DeShields Jr. Now he's a better base stealer than uh, Delino is, and he makes a little more contact. But he does not make enough authoritative contact to hold down a 296 batting average. Uh, like you said, he's hitting 165 right now. Um, this is a guy who's going to be up and down um, batting average and on base wise, depending on his hit rate, depending on his uh, batting average on balls in play. And right now, he hasn't been very good. This this was a good time for Seattle to do this. Uh, they called up a guy named Braden Bishop, who I don't think is going to be an MLB regular, but he's a center fielder with some defensive skills. He'll get some time in center field. Mitch Hanniger is going to get some time. He's capable you know, in center field. And let's face it, Seattle has a, a real glut in that lineup. If they can put C, if they can put Hanniger in center field, it opens up uh, uh, room at the outfield corners and gets all of their, their, mash, their mashing unit into, uh, into the starting lineup. Yeah, they've got Domingo Santana, who looks like a lock. Hanniger looks like a lock for from f some fairly serious playing time. And then that raises the question, what are they going to do with that third spot? And, uh, and they, they have some options. None of the options, I have to say, when I look at them, looks particularly useful. Although maybe this is a pathway to some uh, additional playing time for Jay Bruce. Yeah, um, uh, Jay Bruce is doing his thing. Last I checked, he was hitting a bunch of homers and hitting about 200. Uh, they still have to move Jay Bruce, or I, I think they do. They have to move Jay Bruce and Edwin Encarnacion. So um, those guys aren't going to get any exposure sitting on the bench, certainly not Bruce. So um, I think they would like to play him right now. And not only that, but I think a lot of us expected that the Mariners would be making early moves on their veteran players, you mentioned Encarnacion and Bruce, to try to pick up prospects, because I don't think they thought they were going to be a contender this year, but at least uh, one month into the season, they look like they could be a contender, and maybe they could uh, think twice about this idea of dumping the season if they're, if they're being competitive with Houston and maybe looking at a wildcard possibility, especially when you think about Boston's got a very slow start. There's pathways for the Seattle Mariners to get into the playoffs this year, which could really change their thinking about hanging on to some of these guys. But then if they do, then they have to try to find them places to play, and that's going to be the challenge, I think. 
Yeah, I think you're right. They play in a, other than Houston, they play in a relatively weak division. Uh, I wasn't sold on the Mariners this year. I thought they would finish uh, middle of the pack in the in the AL West. I, I thought their offense was going to be a lot better than their pitching. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, their offense has surprised everybody just how good it's been. Um, I thought it was going to be good. I think their pitching's been better than I thought it was going to be, but I don't expect it to hold up. I mean, the the most interesting thing about their pitching right now, just to divert for a minute, is uh, is what's happened to Felix Hernandez's last two, three games. Uh, that might give them a little bit of hope, but I still think uh, come June, July, um, you're probably going to see a team that's pretty well off the wild card pace. And if that happens, then, of course, they'll have to make some adjustments as well. So the, a very fluid situation in Seattle. And uh, sometimes we say a fluid situation makes it interesting to watch a team, but it's tough to, to look at their fantasy assets without being a little bit worried, uh, especially if you're playing in an American League only where you lose a guy if he's traded out of the league because I think that anything's possible on, on that score as well. You mentioned uh, Bra- uh, Braden Bishop, that they brought up a prospect. Uh, let's talk about a couple of other ones. Uh, some of them more notable than Bishop were also promoted this week. In Tampa, for instance, first baseman Nate Lau was called up, and so far he's playing. Yeah, he, he's a big-time power prospect who broke out in 2018 with 27 homers at three levels, uh, and he could be found on on at least a few preseason top 100 lists. He's got patience, uh, even a career 300-plus batting average in the minors, so I don't think he's going to hit that in the bigs. He's made four consecutive starts at first base in DH, and he's held his own. He's four for 15 so far. He's a left-handed hitter who could even retain some of the Tampa Bay first base at bats, even after some of their injured players get back. Uh, I think G-Man Choi is going to have some of his time taken away, and and Tampa Bay is cycling uh, players regularly through that DH spot, so there's going to be a squeeze there. Tampa Bay is an awfully interesting team, but I think Lau could stick. Yeah, uh, Choi's out hitting him, uh, OPS-wise at least, in the early going by about 200 points. So there's that to consider. I I guess it all depends on how much they think that Choi can fit in in the long run and whether Nate Lowe will get better as he goes along. Those are things that we really have to keep a a close eye on, I believe. There's also uh, uh, other moving parts here. Yandy Diaz is a flavor of the week. He's off to a terrific start on the on-base front at round 360 and an 880-some OPS. But his batting average is not that low. He's he's. It seems to be one of those guys who's benefiting from the ball a little bit. Uh, I don't know exactly what to make of Yandy Diaz. Whether he's a a guy to acquire, a guy to be careful of, all of these kind of things. Again, it reminds me of Seattle, Jock, in that there's a lot of players here. A lot of them have some useful sort of aspects to them that could make them interesting as fantasy assets. But then you look at the list and you go, where's all the playing time going to come from? Yeah, exactly. And Tampa Bay has 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 it a little better than Seattle in that they have they have real depth and real ML uh, major league uh, uh, ready depth. Um, and these kids are young. They're not they're not trying to peddle them like Edwin Encarnacion or Jay Bruce. Uh, and it's a long season, like you said. It's very difficult to plan on who's going to get time, say next month, as opposed to this one, because things could could have radically changed. Yep, only so many spots for that many players. That's uh, that's really something. Another prospect who's come up recently, Griffin Canning, down in your neck of the woods in Anaheim. He made his uh, major league debut, gave up three runs, didn't quite get through the fifth inning because he threw a lot of pitches. But it sounded to me like he was pretty impressive, Jock. What did you see? 
Yeah, he was. At one point uh, in the game against Toronto, he with five straight hitters, and uh, he was getting a lot of swings and misses. The Angels want to see what they have here. Of, of course, uh, they, they need rotation help, so that doesn't hurt his, his chances. But Cannon's a UCLA product, so he's pretty polished. He has four average to above average pitches uh, with good command. He has number three starter up, upside, uh, and, and health permitting over the long haul, he could definitely uh, uh, settle in as a back-end starting pitcher at worst. So he's flyer-worthy right here, uh, uh, very similar to, La- to Lau. So I, I think he'd be a target in American League-only formats. I'm not sure about uh, mixed, for sure not in a mixed 12, but what about a mixed 15 league? Is he kind of on the cusp, or is he just somebody that you would just be sure to go out and sign at this point? How do you feel about uh, Griffin Canning as a mixer league type uh, asset? Um, maybe at the back end of that format. I mean, let's face it, the way pitching is right now and the way pitching is going down, he has enough upside that he's the, he's a guy who could kind of take off a little bit. Um, I, I, I would definitely consider him. Well, I know a lot of eyes will be on Griffin Canning when he makes his next start. It's against the Tigers, which is a, a little bit easier of a matchup, I think, than Toronto, uh, at least a little bit. I'm not sure, but uh, I'll sure be watching Griffin Canning. That's uh, that's high on my agenda because he's available in my league, so i got to take a look and see if I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, and there you go. Against the Tigers, you should be interested. <laughs> All right, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis. He writes regularly for the site. And, of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette. But right now it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Roto Gaming column, Steve Gardner looks at Vlad Jr.'s extraordinary plate discipline. In playing time tomorrow, our own Jock Thompson has roster forecasts for the American League West, and Alain de Leonardis looks at the National League East, including outfield situations in Miami and Atlanta. And in the Daily Call-Ups report, potential all-star outfielder Nick Senzel, potential comic book hero Sky Bolt, and potential number four starter Cal Quantrill are among the prospects being called up this week and analyzed by the crack Baseball HQ scout team. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers every week. There's fantasy market analysis and injury analysis. Plus, there are tools like player projections, the daily dashboards, and leading indicators. Add it all up. This is content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire. Jason, welcome back. Thank you. In your April 25th Colette Calls column at Rotowire, you had a fairly in-depth look at Jose Quintana of the Chicago Cubs. He's off to a good start. He's got three wins, a 350-ish sort of ERA, 120 whip, and a 10.2 strikeouts per nine dom rate that is pretty close to a career high. So my first question for you is, as a pitcher analyst, how real do you think Jose Quintana's good start in 2019 really is? 
I think it's very real. I mean, he had that that giant hiccup against the Brewers, uh, and Milwaukee has been a pain point for him for the most part. You look back at the last couple of years, um, it's it's just been a, a, a tough matchup. But I think it's it's tough to overlook some somebody who's made a a dom a dom rate jump from eight point two to ten point two. I mean, that's where he was last year to compare to where he was this year, and he's made some changes. One of the things in the article I point about some mechanical changes. Uh, he's moved a, moved a bit towards the third base side of the rubber. Uh, he's also done something with his with his front lift foot. Uh, there was a great article in the Athletic that talked about it back in February, that said you know he was pointing his his lift foot up in the air. And yeah, as you're listening to this, if you want to stand up and try that and see how you are with your balance um, compared to pointing it down. Uh, you know, try both of those and see which one feels better for you. And that's really what Quintana's done. And it, you know, if you if you're better balanced, you're more likely to hit your spot. I mean, Quintana doesn't have the velocity to get away with mistakes. Last year, he wasn't hitting his spots, and his mistakes were getting punished. You watch him pitch this year, and you can see him. You're you're not seeing Wilson Contreras uh, move his glove around as much as he had to last year. And you're, you're seeing Quintana throw with the changeup more. That was really a big thing for him. Uh, is he made an effort in the offseason to work more on his changeup. Uh, and uh, last year he used it like five, six percent of the time. This year it's in the double digit rate. And he's cut back on his four seam and using a sinker more. And so if we think back to you know, this year with the home run issue, and he's given uh, his home run rates right in line to where it, where it has been historically, uh, for him. But that said, and he gave up two to Eduardo Escobar in that start against, uh, uh, Arizona the other day too, but before that he had been pitching really well. All of his home runs had come in that Milwaukee start, but he had avoided them otherwise. Um, but I, this was a guy that I was going after uh, in leagues that I could all over the place because getting back to that third time through the order penalty, he was Yoda Rizzi was the worst pitcher in that penalty last year, but Quintana was right behind him. Uh, and so when I looked at when I looked at his historical rates. That's something that was way out of line with where he had been historically. And then understanding that Joe Madden's smart enough to be like, you know what, I can't leave this guy out there to that kind of punishment again and third time through the order. I think they had to last year because their bullpen was so threadbare that they needed to try to get as much as they could out of the starter. So my hope was that he would throw fewer innings this year, uh, but the mechanical changes uh, and the repertoire changes are, are playing out very nicely this year. I mean, again, strikeout rates up, walk rates down. That's what you want to see. If he can get back to being that guy with the, that he was with the White Sox where he had you know a low to mid three ERA, which is right about where he sits right now, plus get these strikeouts. And once that team starts hitting, then we're in a really good place. And right now, three wins, 348 ERA, and 38 strikeouts and 33 and two-thirds of uh, inning is really good start. I don't examine pitchers to the depth that you do, Jason, but I have a question about Jose Quintana and pitchers like him that I'd like you to comment on, and it is this. His fastball velocity has stayed pretty consistent right around 92 miles an hour on average, which is, which is okay. But his changeup velocity is at 87 pretty consistently, 86, 87. So the difference between fastball and changeup is only in that 5 to 6 mile an hour range. And based on what I've read, based on what I've heard uh, listening to the radio broadcasts and television broadcasts, aren't we looking for something in an effective changeup closer to a 10 mile an hour difference rather than a 5 mile an hour difference? You know, years ago I did, I wish I could find it, but I, I looked at differential between fastball and changeup, trying to look for that sweet spot to say, okay, hey, where's the best 
one uh, to that. And what I remember about it was the the study being inconclusive. Like you could find a, a guy that okay, great, uh, ninety two fastball, eighty four changeup. This was great, but a guy throwing ninety five and eighty seven, not so great. It, it wasn't that wasn't that conclusive. And I would point to you know Tyler Glass now started throwing a changeup this weekend against Boston. He, you know, he had pitched against Boston the previous week, didn't use it. He was throwing changeups in that game, and there's a good article by David Lorelaw on Fangraphs about it. But, you know, Glassnell throws 96 to 98, and his changeup is 93. I mean, we should all feel inadequate thinking about a guy throwing a changeup harder than 99% of humans throw a fastball. But here is, here is Glassnell throwing a 93-mile-an-hour changeup. And you go back and watch the Boston game, you can see the uncomfortable swings and the weak contact on that changeup because it was a new pitch that they hadn't seen five days earlier, and it still looked like his fastball out of his hand. And that's really the key that the key to a great changeup is not the speed differential. It's does it look like a is it look like a fastball coming out of a hand? And even five miles an hour, as long as it's not up in the zone, is still going to disrupt a, a hitter's timing because again, it, that's what it is. Hitting is all about timing. Pitching is all about disrupting timing. And even at five miles an hour differential, if it looks like a fastball out of the hand and it starts dropping as it comes to the plate, that's going to equal weak contact. Ideally, you would like a swing and miss, but getting weak contact, that would be ideal too. And that's when you look at what you're getting out of Quintana. I watched the, the game against the, against the Cubs and not against the Cubs, against the Dodgers. I mean, that was the best. That was a Sunday night game, I believe, and that was the one a lot of people were like, okay, whatever, Quintana just had a big game against the Marlins. Everybody's going to have a good game against the Marlins. Well, he takes on the Dodgers, who at the time were the hottest offense in baseball, and pretty much shut them down, and that was impressive. And You you go back and watch that final frame. I think it was a bases loaded because of a defensive miscue, and he has Max Muncy up, and he struck out Max Muncy looking. And you you can see the changeup. You saw the sinker. That's what's to me. That's what's been impressive is it's about how he's using his pitches, and uh, you know, moving on the rubber will sometimes cause a little more deception. That's one of the things I'd point out about Jalen Beeks. Uh, with Beeks, he has the um, you know he's moved that way, but he's also changed his delivery, so he's hiding the ball more. That's one of the things that really appealed to me is is he's now really hiding it. So when he lets it go, it's he's, he's not showing as much of his uh, of his release point as he was last year and uh so that's what i like about pitching when i see guys making those types of changes uh and, and seeing the swings and misses that are getting off the pitch that appeals to me i noticed in your column jason you didn't look just at quintana's 2019 season but went back over his last 15 starts and i was curious whether that was a sample size issue for you or was it moving back to that inflection point where you talked about they changed his mechanics about his foot tilt on his uh, on his wind up uh, why 15 starts back it was it really was uh, a mechanical change they started making that change uh, back in early august and so that's where I wanted to start from, is look at, okay, you, you put this into practice, your first start in August, let's look at that point and see how, and you could see the improvements if you look through, uh, as I showed in the article, you could see the improvements as he finished the season on where this was going. And maybe we should have done a better job of picking up on this during our off-season analysis because I don't really recall anybody talking much about it. Uh, but then you, you, that's where it becomes beneficial to combine previous year stats and current stats 
when it when it gets to a when it gets to some kind of change like this. Uh, and so that's why, especially this time of year. I mean, as you know, writing this time of year is so tough because we're we're talking about the smallest of sample sizes. Even now in the May, it's still tough to write about things. So you've got to pull back in the last year. But if there are if there are dramatic changes that have happened in the off season, it makes it tough to combine those stats. But when these changes happen in the previous season, then we've got a good starting point. And here we did. Now, had Quintana done all of this in spring training, I don't think I would have written about it the way I did because we would have been talking about four starts. And I would have really been hedging my bets more and saying, okay, look, let's see if this holds up because he's done it against the Marlins. He did it against Pittsburgh, who doesn't hit well, and this is what it is. But we got 15 starts. That's half a season. That's a lot of data to work with. A little while back, also in Colette Call's column at Rotowire, you talked about some of the new pitches. We hear every preseason about this pitcher or that pitcher is adding a, a pitch or tweaking a pitch or changing his approach with a pitch, changing the percentage of use. As a rule of thumb, Jason, how many of these new pitches and changes in pitches do pitchers actually use in the, in the, when the real games start getting played? Uh, on the most part, about... 50% of them, and I, but I still do this every year. I mean, this is six years I've done this now. Um, but some years it works better than others. I mean, last year, Trevor Bauer as a great example. Marco Gonzalez is a great example. Wade Miley. I mean, Wade Miley and Marco Gonzalez were free agent fodder who turned themselves into useful pitchers last year, adding a new pitch. Um, Trevor Bauer took himself to a new level, adding a new pitch. Uh, and so these are things that this is why I continue to do this every year. It's not the, it's not the overall percentage. It's who's in that percentage that makes the change and, and can make a difference. So, um, you know, so that's why I do this every year. And this year I think there's like 70. And I will – usually we can see which, pitch, which pitches come north rather quickly. I mean, I typically wait to write that article a little later into the season. But right now, I was like, let's see if they're using it now. Because if they're not using it now, they're not going to be using it in June either. But then I mentioned earlier, you know, Glass now threw a, rolled out a changeup that he never even used in spring training, rolled it out last weekend. Um, Pagan's using a curveball. But Pagan did talk about using the curveball in spring training. So there's a good example of a guy saying, I'm going to do it, and then doing it. Um, conversely, Glass now just never threw one, and then now is throwing one in spring. Now is throwing one in season, so uh, it's something I definitely like to look at because I'm looking for new results. If the guy's throwing, you know, with Pagan, we talked about the platoon splits that he's had historically. That so far in small sample size is better because he made a change. Uh, you know, conversely, I would look at a guy the other night, Brad Keller pitched. Brad Keller uh, was a bit of a sleeper for a lot of folks, still really good against righties, but still not throwing anything that's giving lefties uh, pause, so that sinker-slider mix that, that Keller has still leaves him susceptible to lefties, and we've seen it this year. He's got to come up with something, otherwise there's not another level for him if he's going to have those kind of platoon splits. It seems obvious, Jason, that adding an effective pitch to any pitcher's mix is going to help him, but has anybody figured out, have you figured out the magnitude of improvement in ERA or whip or any other terms that results from a pitch change or a pitch addition? Uh, not really. Most of the time it shows up in strikeout rate. That's the one thing that I've seen. I did, I think about a year and a half, two years ago, I wrote, I, I went back and, and pulled the data from the previous three or four years and look and, and found guys that had added new pitches on the average had gained three percentage points in their strikeout rate. Uh, and 
which was enough for me to keep going with it, and that's what I'm looking for. Uh, the other the ratios I haven't looked into to see what kind of uh, what kind of contributions is making there. But for me, it was it was all about it was all about strikeouts. So I, again, using control group of guys that used it or didn't, um, even with the league wide strikeout rate growing every year as it has for the last what twelve years. Um, on the whole, those guys still improve their average three percentage points more than guys who didn't add new pitches. In your study, you looked at 12 pitchers, and you focused on two pretty established guys in Luke Weaver of Arizona and Jordan Zimmerman of Detroit, who both reworked existing pitches rather than adding them. Uh, Let's start with Luke Weaver. You said he rebuilt his curveball. Uh, What does rebuilt mean? Uh, really reshaping it, a lot like Trevor Bauer. I mean, Bauer spent the 2007, the 2018 offseason, rather, working at the uh, driveline camp in Seattle trying to get new shape to his breaking ball. And we saw the action on that pitch last year. Um, and and even with his change, he was working on a few pitches. But it, it's more of how that shape comes out. And last year, I remember reading some stories about Luke Weaver and hitters being able to see the curve. They knew when the curveball was coming. Uh, it had more of a it had more of a hump too out of out of the hand, so they could recognize it qu- uh, more quickly. And uh, getting back to the times to the order penalty, Luke Weaver paid a dear price third time through the order last year because first two times once they picked up, okay, I can see the curveball. Then he became a fastball changeup guy the third time through the order, and it was like they were jumping all over fastballs. But he was getting punished, and that was something that. Uh, that Mike Matheny really didn't pick up on, uh, and Weaver didn't really get better until the end of the season once the managerial change. But Weaver went and bought one of those Rapsodo machines out of his own budget, uh, picked out of his own pocket and bought one of those to look at what his curveball looked like, saw what the hitters were seeing, and made changes to reshape that so the pitch wasn't so recognizable out of his hand. And so that's that's really where you want to see. And so you watch him pitch this year, and he has looked better than he did last year. Um, we're still talking about some consistency issues that that hasn't happened yet. I know his last start, uh, his most recent start wasn't uh, wasn't as good as his previous ones, but we're still going to have some issues there. But overall, he looks better on the mound this year than he did last year. And last year was the year. I mean, people were drafting this guy very highly, and he was one of the ones that I was not on last year because if you look my main reason about not liking him is his his swinging his strikeout rate was way out of line with his swinging strike rate like i when i looked at him i was like this guy should be marcus stroman but he was striking out almost 30 percent of the guys with his swinging strike rate in the single digits that didn't line up when i did a scatter plot and said okay i show me all the guys with swinging strike rates and the overall strikeout rate. I wrote an article about this at RotoWire too, uh, and you can. It was in my 2018 NL Central Bold predictions. I said this guy's going to suck, and this is why. And sure enough, that he did. But he he had this normally high strikeout rate, but his swing strikeout rate was in the middle. It just he was this one dot on the scatter plot that was way out of line, uh, and that came back to that came back to earth this year. But you know, when we've seen him already, he's had six starts this year, and he's got. Uh, strikeout rate of seven. Uh, he had seven strikeouts, nine strikeouts, and eight strikeouts against Pittsburgh, Atlanta, and San Diego. Uh, Boston struggled a little bit against Dodgers, so that he had two uh, Dodgers again. One of the toughest line. That was the first game of the season. Sorry, um, I'm reading this backwards. But you know, since that Dodgers game, he's been rather rather good, and he's only allowed three home runs over his last five starts. So, I mean, we're we're talking about a guy who's obviously in a better place than where he was. Uh, last year in St. Louis, and the strikeout rate, the dom rate, went from eight to ten point three. 
So you have, what's the same guy with the same repertoire and the same pitches, but what's changed? And you could see that you know he's got more shape to his breaking ball, and that's been the difference for him because he's, there's no new pitch anywhere on here. He's still throwing the changeup, still throwing the breaking ball, still throwing the fastball. He's throwing the fastball a little less than he did with uh, St. Louis, but he's got new shape to his breaking ball, and that's that's making a difference for him. I looked at Luke Weaver's pitch mix, and the thing that jumped out at me is he's throwing the curveball a lot less and is uh, around 8% instead of around 12 13% this year, uh, down around 8 and And is that an indication that he's using it, just spotting it better and mixing it in better? Or is that an indication that we should be concerned that he still doesn't like the way it's working? If you look at the same thing, it's saying he's throwing a cutter more. I'm wondering if, if the pitch qualification is, is not under, not recognizing the pitch and saying, hey, I think it's this instead of this. Uh, because when we see that, that that confuses me a little. Because when I've watched him pitch, I can still see I still see what I want to see um, out of him. And I'm just wondering if the pitch classification is picking up the cutter as a curve, and that's something that will stabilize out, and we'll get a better we'll get a better result on that um, later on. But it's something to work on. But he's definitely throwing non fastballs a little more than he was last year. Yeah, I thought the same thing. The big jump in cutter use uh, seems to indicate that probably most of them are curves, and if so, that means he's actually up about four or five percentage points on curveball use, which would be a very positive thing because it would mean that he believes in the pitch and that he thinks it's it's being effective, that the changes that he made uh, are, uh, are working. Uh, one guy who concerns you on your list, and you've talked about Blake Parker earlier, the closer for now in Minnesota. What was your concern about Blake Parker? Uh, the fact that he only had the two pitches, uh, that was, he was the fastball and the, uh, and the split chase, uh, that he had. And that was really it. And the fastball wasn't that great. That was what concerned me. Plus when you look at Trevor May and Taylor Rogers, like he was coming into a situation where he was clearly, clearly the third best reliever yet. He's now he has six saves. He's leading the club in saves, but on paper and on results, he was clearly the third best reliever on that team. But I guess you know Minnesota Rocco Baldelli in Minnesota has looked and said, "Look, we're going to use our best relievers when we can." And so they, you know, May has gotten off to a slow start, but Taylor Rogers has been amazing, uh, and they've been using Taylor Rogers all over the place in the late innings. They've used May when they when they could, and then Parker's been the guy grabbing the save. So I think it's one of these examples where he's not the best guy on the team, but he's the best guy for the ninth inning when they have a lead because their better relievers have pres- have gotten the ball to this guy in the ninth inning. And it's kind of frustrating, isn't it, Jason? Because for years, people like us have been saying, why don't these major league managers figure it out that that's how they should be using their bullpens? Best guy in, in the toughest situation. And then when they do it, we think, he's the best guy. He should be getting the saves because I rostered him because I need saves. Yeah, we love it. We love it as baseball fans. We hate it as fantasy baseball fans. I mean, like, I, I have a couple of shares of Trevor May because I thought he was the guy that was going to get it, and, and that has not worked out. It's unfortunate uh, that it, that it's not working out, and uh, I wish I wish it were. But you know, Blake Parker was sitting out there for the free on the free for everybody, and uh, you know he, he's getting six eight, like just like Shane Green. Shane Green was sitting out there for the free and for a while. It seemed like he was going to save every Detroit Tigers win. But these are the, this is why the saves category drives us nuts. I mean, guys that we know, we look on paper and say, yeah, it's going to take a lot for this guy to get the job, and then all of a sudden he has the job. I mean, like you look at our friend Larry Schechter, he has three saves on the year. 
I'm sure he would love to have Blake Parker. Blake Parker. I don't think Blake Parker was drafted. If he was, he was in the reserve rounds. <clears throat> Pardon me, and he's making a difference. I mean, Shane Green was a, was a late grab for somebody, and they've already got 10 saves out of Shane Green. I don't know if Shane Green gets the 20 saves this year, but he's already got 10, which is about five more than most of us thought he would get. Uh, that would be me. <laughs> I think I think I spent about 10 bucks for him at the draft just because he was – basically the last guy left and I just my strategy was I didn't want to spend a lot of money for a closer and so nine dollars I spent on Shane Green and a dollar a save I'll take it uh, so far uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Jason during the season I like to ask our experts to talk about some players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season uh, let's start with some boons these are guys you think should interest our listeners uh, let's start in the American League with a boon hitter so I'm going to go back to you when we're talking about the actual versus expected stat leaderboard. Everybody that I talk about here, I'm pulling straight from there, so I'm going to mention their numbers uh, just so you can uh, listeners can get into the habit of checking that board and, and trying to use it as a uh, as a guide, not not the gospel, but a guide to looking at what you may do. So for a Boone Hill hitter, I'm looking at Yonder Alonso. His actual weighted on base average right now is 316, which is pretty decent. But based on his contact, his expected is 379. So he's hitting the ball well. It's not showing up in the results yet. To me, Yonder Alonso is somebody you could pick up on the cheap uh, from somebody right now, and you may be able to reap the benefits that they hoped they were getting when they drafted him. And in the National League, who's a boon hitter? <clears throat> Fran Mill Reyes, and this is a guy I know it's kind of weird to say, hey, this guy's got eight home runs already. Why, you know, why is he, uh, why are you putting him down here? But you look at the overall numbers, the rest of the numbers aren't there, but there is a 105 point difference in his actual and his expected. I mean, you watch Fran Mill Reyes play, there are few guys in baseball that can hit the ball as hard as he can. Um, this was a guy that my bold prediction to start the season was that he was going to hit 35 home runs this year. He's already a quarter of the way there, and we're not a quarter of the way through the season. Um, and so the expected contact is saying, yeah, this guy hits the snot out of the baseball. And it's just a matter of him staying in the lineup. You know, the batting average may suffer. We're talking about a guy 6'7", 275 with a long swing. But, man, when he squares one up, those balls disappear in a hurry. Um, and the expected contact is saying there's more in the tank for him which is if I didn't already own him in four leagues, I would be buying more of shares of him up right now. Over to the mound we go uh, in the American League. Who's a boon pitcher for you? I mentioned him a few minutes ago, but Taylor Rogers. I, again, I know he's not in the role and Blake Parker's getting the saves, but Taylor Rogers right now, his, his expected weighted on base average is 258, which is just dominant. I mean, over the last calendar year, we're talking about a guy with 88 strikeouts and 71 innings and a 164 ERA and a 195 batting average against. That's over the last calendar year. Uh, it's just the Minnesota bullpen's deep, and he's getting uh, he's had again the use patterns all over the place. But those are skills that are rosterable regardless of role, and he's pitching really well. And surprisingly, he has no wins yet, but this is the kind of guy you'd expect to, by the end of the season, is going to vulture a few wins, even if he doesn't get a ton of saves. I also would expect he's going to get some saves just by accident, one of those sort of four-out, four five-out saves at the, end of the, at the end of the game when he's pitching well. Uh, who's the National League pitcher who's a boon for you? Um, staying on the bullpen theme, I'm going to go with Archie Bradley. I mean, there's an 84-point gap between his actual and his expected. Uh, I still think he's the best reliever in Arizona. I mean, he was the guy that I was drafting before the season started, before they decided they wanted to try to squeeze juice out of Greg Holland. But I still think Archie Bradley's the best option there long term, uh, and that's who I'm suggesting getting on the cheap now. 
Hasn't Greg Holland pretty much had all the juice squeezed out of him? <laughs> you would think, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jason Collette's Boons, Yonder Alonzo of the White Sox, Fran Reyes of San Diego, Taylor Rogers of Minnesota, Archie Bradley of Arizona. Jason, let's move over to your Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Once again, let's start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter for you? So you mentioned Mitch Garver earlier, who was uh, I originally had down, uh, but so sticking with position, Robinson Chirinos. There's a 125 point difference between his actual and his expected weighted on base average, uh, 374, which is amazing, 254, which is bad even for a catcher. I know we can't be picky at catcher, but that but this is what you expect out of Sharina. So when you came into the season, you drafted him. You were hoping he would get the uh, upper teens home runs and not absolutely kill your batting average. You know, being in Houston with his heavy fly, heavy pull and fly ball approach and that ballpark, he should get to that home run total, but that he has to continue doing that in order to have that value. But right now he is overperforming. Uh, and if you, if you have, you're like, Hey, great. This, I can don't make other plans on your roster based on what Sharinos is doing out of the gate. Cause you're going to regret it. 10 walks uh, so far this year though. So if you're in an on base league walks are something that tend to be a skill that, that maintains. So there's a little bit of plus side on Robinson Trinos from that angle, I suppose. Uh, who's a national league hitter. Who's a bane for you. I bring, I bring up Rommel Tapia because, you know, obviously people are trying to bury Ian Desmond and just get him off. I mean, Ian Desmond never should, Colorado never should assign Ian Desmond, but, Besides that, you know, Tapia right now is, is actual weighted on base average 358. Stellar is expected 254. Not stellar. Again, that's the same level as Chirinos. So as you're looking, if, if they do decide they're going to do something with Desmond and they want to open up, you still have McMahon, you still have Ryan McMahon. You have other options there. But I I would not be running out to blow budget on Ramal Tapia if they say, okay, Tapia's in our lineup every day now. Oh, my God, let's go run out. There, There's a lot of risk there. Back to the mound we go in the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a bane for you? I'm going to go to Aaron Sanchez on the American League. Uh, the the there's a seventy I'm sorry eighty three point differential between his actual and his expected uh, contact. So he's had a lot of batted ball fortune right now. But uh, I, frankly, the Toronto pitching staff has has pitched well. I mean, I think with uh, you look at Marcus Stroman and how he's doing this year. But the fact with with Sanchez, the walk rate is up higher than ever, and the but, but the contact is telling us there's more to come, and he's getting away with these walks because he's not allowing the home runs right now. But when the home runs start coming, those walks that's that ERA is going to double in a hurry. Right now it's two thirty two, but there's a there's a two you know, his, his fifth is four forty three. But there's more pain coming once the home runs start to normalize if this walk rate doesn't get under control, and that's where I would be worried. So. I would if if you have those three wins out of and two thirty two ERA out of Aaron Sanchez, I hope you enjoyed it because there's not going to be much more coming from it. Possibility of selling high, yeah. I I have Aaron Sanchez in one league and I, I'm using his as, as a streamer. Twenty one percent strikeout rate is a almost a career high, but uh, so is that fifteen percent walk rate and the strikeout to walk rate is very worrisome. I like a guy who's around three. He's barely one and a half. Uh, yeah, I I've, I'm very concerned about Aaron Sanchez as well. Uh, who's a National League pitcher who's a bane for you, Jason? I, I- 
So this may feel like a repeat because this is the exact same guy I used the last time I was on this podcast. But I said John Lester then. I'm going to say John Lester again. Uh, you were looking at a 308 actual weighted on base average and a 376 expected. I mean, this year you look at it and you're like, okay, wow, the strikeout rate is up from 7-4 to 9. The walk rate's down a little bit. Yeah, the home runs are up a little bit. But then his his strand rate is upwards of 96% right now. as a starting For a starting pitcher, that's insanity. That's why we see it difference in his ERA and his uh, FIP uh, of uh, 237 ERA, 4.11 FIP. He's stranding everybody. And despite that, in his four starts, he has one win. I mean, with all that fortune, he has one win. What's going to happen when he's, when he can't strand guys at that capacity? And when the, when the contact, when the contact starts catching up uh, and the results start getting more in line, what's going to happen? So for me, I'm not looking at John Lester as a buying opportunity because the Dom rate's up. I'm looking at him as if I have him, I'm trying to sell him while the getting's good rather than trying to ride this one out. Justin Collette's Baines, Robinson Trinos of Houston, Ramel Tapia of Colorado, Aaron Sanchez of Toronto, and John Lester of the Cubs. Uh, Jason, gosh, this has been fun. Tell our listeners where they can read more from Jason Collette. Sure, I have a column, Collette Calls, uh, goes up every Thursday at Rotowire, uh, and then uh, on Twitter, uh, at Jason Collette, I am very quiet during the day because I have a day job, and I, I can't afford the time of sitting there responding to lineup questions and trade questions, but I am rather active on the nights, especially the weekends, uh, because uh, I, I enjoy watching baseball with others, whether it be virtually or, or live. Uh, like last night, I went to Charlotte and watched Dylan Cease pitch, struck out 11 and in six innings, was hitting 98 through most of the start. Uh, it was fun to watch. You don't get to see a lot of those guys come through AAA. Most of the time, you're looking at retreads, but to see a guy like Dylan Cease live was a lot of fun last night. And they have a nice and relatively new ballpark in Charlotte for the AAA nights, do they not? It's awesome. It's 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 right in uptown. It's it's just north of uh, Bank of America Stadium where the Panthers play. Uh, so it's right there, and the skyline keeps changing every time I go to a game. There seems like a new building has popped up, but it's uh, it's a gorgeous skyline uh, there. If you're ever in the area, uh, listeners, highly recommend you go to a game. Uh, reach out to me. Maybe I can just join you. I have joined a few people that say, "Hey, I'm in town for a business trip. You want to go to the game? Sure, I'm home too," um, which is a rarity, but uh, I do try to do that. And so last night I took my son to the game, but it is a gorgeous location and uh, just great, great area to, uh, to go watch a baseball game. What did they do with the old stadium down in, uh, just across the line in South Carolina? They destroyed it. <laughs> they, they kept the, uh, the water tower. If, if, for people that have driven along uh, I-77, there's a water tower that's in a baseball, and that's where uh, it's in Fort Mill, but that's where the baseball stadium used to be, and they called it the castle uh, because it's Charlotte Knights. But they bulldozed, and I think they were going to turn it into a neighborhood. Uh, but the problem was just getting down there. I mean, geographically, it was just a tough place to get to. And it, it upset my brothers. Both of my brothers live within five minutes of the old location. So getting them to come to a game in uptown Charlotte uh, is, is not easy to do because they were just mad the team moved. But Charlotte has led the minor leagues in attendance every single year since they've opened up the stadium because it's so convenient to get to. Uh, for the people after work, just roll out of it. There's a lot of residential area very close to uptown, very easy to get to. It's it's a 20-minute drive for me uh, from, from Matthews on the southeast side of town, so it's very easy for me to get up there. And I go probably to uh, eight to ten games a year around my travel schedule. It uh, depends on, like this weekend, I'm going to uh, Baltimore and seeing the Rays play in Baltimore on Sunday afternoon because I have a business business trip that begins Sunday night in Baltimore. So I get the uh, 
get the nice pleasure of going to see the Hot Rays play uh, Baltimore, maybe hit eight home runs in that game. Who knows? And let's make sure we have the right Twitter handle because, uh, as if I recall correctly from past pods and just from talking to you, there's some kind of Canadian country musician with the same name, and we've got to make sure that we don't bother him with baseball questions and that we do bother you with baseball questions. Yes, we... Uh Mine has the E at the end. We're both Jason Colette, but he doesn't have the E. I do. Uh, he is an independent musician in Canada. Uh, I am not an independent musician in the United States. But then the uh, there is another guy on social media who has my exact name spelling, and he was. We've become Facebook friends. We've never met because every now and then I'll get something for him. He gets something for me. Um, but I I made a tweet about Luke Voigt this week about his weighted on base average since he had become a Yankee is the fourth highest in baseball behind Mike Trout, Cody Bellinger, um, and drawing a blank at the third name. But that's, yeah, that's, and I just said, wow. And that, that thing's gotten you know, like 2,500 likes. Well, one of his league mates saw it and was like, hey, Jason, are you doing this stuff on the side? And he had to explain. So he and I were trading messages back and forth over the weekend, which made, which makes for a funny story. I also had one Jason Collette reach out to me. I had to send an email to his league because his league thought it was me. And they weren't going to let him in because, like, no, 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 you're, you're, you're a writer. You can't join this league. He's like, no, I just have the same. I had to write an email to them. I'm like, this is me, this other guy. I don't know who he is, but we have the same name. Sorry for the confusion. But at one time, I had to do that a few years ago. And just to be clear, there's no underscores. It's just Jason Collette, all one word, with two L's, two T's, and an E on the end. Yep, look for the guy with the raised hat uh, on, the, on the Pitmoji. That's me. And I think my my Twitter, the header on my Twitter profile is an overhead shot of Mike Zanino hitting a home run, which was his first home run of the season when he came back from paternity leave. So uh, that's one of the great things I love about Tropicana Field. They have a camera up at the top of the dome, so when they hit home runs, they have a view, and you can see the ball coming up uh, on the swing, or you can see plays at the plate. It, it, you know, say what you want about Tropicana Field, but the fact that there's no rain out, it's always 72 degrees, and they have a sky cam for plays at the plate makes it an awesome place for me. Well, Jason, this has been a delight, as I knew it would be. It's always fun to talk to you. I'll try to catch up with you again during the year. And in the meantime, best of luck, and maybe we can talk trade in our Tout American League sometime down the street as well. Sounds good. Thanks, Patrick. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1, one, one, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Up and going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Colon carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. This week in your regular Z-Files column, uh, you wrote about hitters who are ahead of their playing time pace based on preseason projections. You used uh, three different projection systems, uh, averaged their playing time, and found out guys who were ahead of the pace that was projected. You profiled 35 different hitters, from Nick Ahmed to Luke Voigt in alphabetical <laughs> order, but let's zoom in on nine of these guys. We'll go around the horn and maybe through the outfield. And let's start behind the dish with Francisco Cervelli, the Pirates catcher. He's ahead of his playing time pace. Yeah, now, this I, I didn't 
Well, in, in you know, in the, in the blurb, I describe why. I mean, Cervelli's ahead of the pace because logically, with all the concussion history he's had, you have to be careful projecting playing time. So he's not. He's been healthy early on, so he's ahead of the pace. He's interesting because in today's catcher environment, he's he's not. You know, he's one of the don't hurt you type catchers. At least that's what he coming into the season what he should be or or, or was thought to be. Kind of having a bad year. So the the advice here was basically and still is, even though if you, you even if you may have him in a one catcher league, you're probably going to have to look for a replacement anyway. He's not doing what he's supposed to do, and he's striking out a ton. Maybe you should start looking now for your replacement. Yeah, strikeouts way up, uh, walks way down. Uh, I can see that that advice makes a lot of sense. Uh, at first base, a big surprise to a lot of people. The Yankees' first baseman, Luke Voigt, was originally projected around 400 at-bats. He's on pace for 50%, uh, more than that, around 600 at-bats. What's your take on Luke Voigt? Yeah, Voigt, you, know, you say a lot of people, I mean, there are people on his bandwagon that expected to, to see what we're doing. Now, they may not, they'd be more, you know, there's, there's spreadsheet projectors and there's, you know, field projectors and, you know, not editorializing, which is better. They both work. But, you know, the more touch and feel type people were probably higher on Voigt. He had a good second half with the Yankees, et cetera, et cetera. But those of us that, that, that maybe use spreadsheets, we just see, we saw so many options with the Yankees including Greg Bird and some other, you know, DHs, et cetera. So we kind of tempered expectations. But, you know, after his start, you know, it's just it, like I, I think I mentioned, what were we thinking? I mean, why didn't we just say talent will win out? He's better than these guys. These guys will get hurt and give Voight the, the due he was worth. Easy to say 2020. And right after I wrote the piece, I wrote, wrote it, it was a little over a week ago, he wasn't, he wasn't crushing it. He was, you know, he, he hitting homers, but he wasn't hitting for average. He went on a you know a hitting streak binge, so it was just, I don't want to say it was prescient, but it just kind of emphasized the point that uh, he's probably there to stay. The Yankees will find ways to get his bat into the lineup, even though he's a right-handed hitter and therefore not on the strong side of the platoon. I have now come over to the other side, and if I have Voight, I'm not just enjoying the early binge. I think I'll be enjoying what he's producing all season long. And that's a, a critical change in thinking to make when you're, especially in, in only leagues, but also in mixed leagues, is that we always start the season with surprisingly good players. And uh, for a lot of us, we look at the surprise and we think, I've got to be starting to plan when I'm going to get rid of this guy mm-hmm. and, and replace him with something better, maybe try to sell high or something like that. But every so often, what we're seeing is for real. And, and in the case of Luke Voigt, uh, your estimation is that this is a guy who's now solidified his performance in your mind. Therefore, you can start looking elsewhere for guys to possibly replace. I do. And perhaps once everybody's healthy, Giancarlo Stanton's coming back, maybe drops in the order to sixth. I don't know. But even so, a healthy Yankee lineup, you know, I, I'll take the sixth place hitter over the cleanup hitter of a, of a lot of teams. So, um, yeah, it, it, at this point, you know, we've done, we've gone down the Greg Bird, Gregory Bird road enough. He's not going to be a threat. Uh, I just, you know, he, will he play every day? Probably not. But I think he will be, if, if 15 team mixed is our, is our fulcrum is, you know, that's the cutoff point. That's the over under point. He's on my 15 team roster, 12 team rosters. I may still look, look to have a, an escape plan, but I, probably won't need it. 
At second base, Brandon Lau of the Tampa Bay Rays looks like he has a really bright future, Todd. He's already signed an extension with the team. They're pretty smart about this kind of stuff, and he's playing well. Uh, what do we think about Brandon Lau? Yeah, Lau, and then they've got, they just brought up Nathaniel Lowe, and they've got Josh Lowe, and there's going to be three L-O-W-E's on their team soon enough, uh, the, the Rays, so uh, maybe save on uniforms. I like him. Now, the, what the Rays do is they like to spread around playing time. And one of the reasons that Lau is playing so much is because Joey Wendell, who kind of filled his role last year, has been absent along with Matt Duffy and to a certain extent Austin Meadows because some of these guys uh, dabble in the outfield as well. I don't think anybody in the Rays you can you can say is going to play every day just because they do like to move the playing time around. But I think they'll keep Lau's bat in the lineup. And again, if we use 15-team mixed as sort of the the uh, the measuring stick, I think I'm okay keeping him around in a 15-team mixed league. I think he will play and play pretty well. He's he's the middle infield eligibility that has more power than speed. You, you know that can go either way. You know narrative can go well. I need speed somewhere. I need to get it from the middle infield. Um, that you know therefore I'm, I'm taking up a position where I could get some speed. Or maybe you have some speed in the outfield and you say, well, I, I need to make up the, the power that I don't have from that outfielder. Lau can give it to you from the middle infield. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but you mentioned that Matt Duffy's on the DL. He'll come back sooner or later. Austin Meadows is on the, I guess, IL is the proper term, and he's going to come right. back relatively quickly. And you still have Daniel Robertson floating around, plus uh, plus you have Lau and Low and Low and, and heaven knows there's <laughs> too many guys here for too few spots. When they're all back and ready to go, who do you think is going to be the odd man out? Yeah, I mean, because Wendell as well, probably... Probably Daniel Robertson, who I was sort of high on coming into the season, but it's, you know, the other thing, too, is is we both have been around long enough. These things usually take care of themselves. I don't want to, you know, I'm not wishing injury upon anybody, but chances are someone else will go down and Tampa will do its thing. But if I was running with Daniel Robertson, and you know what, to a certain extent, Matt Duffy, although I think Tampa you know, at least owes it to him, to give him a shot, he's he's always hurt. He'll provide the empty batting average. I, some of these other guys have got a bit of a bit of pop to him, and I think that's what Tampa needs. But I, they'll probably give Duffy another shot. But it could be Duffy and Daniel Robertson. I would think that probably end up with the short end of the stick by the end of the season. Robertson really needs to do something. Uh, last time I checked, he was way under 200 for a batting yeah. average. He had a couple of homers and a stolen base or two, but gosh, you just can't go up there making that many outs, especially in a right. Tampa team that I think probably is starting to really believe that they may be a playoff contender. They can't afford to, to absorb that many outs. Uh, uh, at third base, also eligible at second, Tommy LaStella of the uh, <laughs> Angels has been a real eye-opener with seven home runs in the early going. How real is his accelerated playing time? pace uh, it, well I I think it's more by default at this point he should get exposed he, you know I, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Ryan Flaherty this time last year who was I believe leading the league in hitting but the Braves had the foresight that he isn't going to continue this way and started to play Johan Camargo more and Dansby Swanson once injuries sort of settled in the problem is uh, Zach Cozart isn't doing anything he's, he's hurt now but he's not doing much when he's healthy, and he hasn't been doing it since the Angels acquired him. Whether it's the park effect or or, or what, you know, so the move from Great American Ballpark to Angel Stadium, it, 
affects people differently, and it could just really have affected Cozart. I know he's good with the glove, even though he's well, not even though, but playing third base now and not shortstop with Simmons at shortstop. So I want to say that in a normal circumstance, Lestella gets exposed and he loses playing time, but eh, Cozart isn't the kind of guy that can come back and take it. David Fletcher, he, he can play some third base, but he, he has an empty batting average, can kind of steal. The new guy, Louis uh, Renjijo, Renjijo, uh, you know, a nice prospect, but what's he gonna? is he going to take time from the veteran? Brad Osmus, the new manager, even though it's a new manager, he's still a veteran manager, and he may go with a guy like Lestella. So I don't know about the playing. I think the playing time may it may hold up, but I just don't think the performance will. I'm, I was looking at Lestella's record, and his batting average is no, nothing special. It's actually lower than it has been by quite yeah. a bit over the last couple of years. But he does have those seven home runs, and he's got a, a, a slugging percentage over 500, which would be a career high. And interestingly enough, the last time he was flirting with these kind of numbers was in 2017, the last juice ball year. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is Tommy Lestella one of those guys who's right in the sweet spot to take advantage of balls flying just that little bit further? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I, it's a good question. I, I, I can look as we're speaking. I can look up his average fly ball distance, because that's what I'm using as my uh, measuring stick to see if, if, if it, if that's the case. Now he's in, you know, playing in Angel Stadium. That's tough. A right field with the new line uh, is easier to hit home runs in Angel Stadium for for right, for left-handed batters. So. Maybe he's taking advantage of that because he is a lefty. I don't know where he's actually hitting his home runs. It looks to me like he's hitting him to right center and not really taking advantage of the of the line. But yeah, the uh, due to that, it's a, I'm a little more optimistic that he can you know hit a couple down the line and line drives that barely go out of the, you know leave then we'll go out of the park because they actually hit a wall. They hit a, they hit the wall above the line. So uh, a couple of extra home runs that that that, that are above the yellow line, but. Yeah, it's it's again, it's more of a uh, by process of elimination, elimination sort of scenario with Lestella. But um, yeah, it does look like his fly ball distance is in the range that he could benefit. But you, see, you mentioned with the average, and I know you know home runs are so important nowadays. I don't know if uh, if we're going to be talking about Lestella as somebody who. Um, uh, who you know? Who hits the, the the 25 home runs like we talked about? Well, smokes Justin smokes a bigger guy, uh, Gene Segura, someone like that who ended up with 21 or 22 a couple years ago. Now, the Stella's home run fly ball distance this year is 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 336, which is well into the range where you can expect a home run increase. I'm just trying to find out what his average has been. His average has been 301, which is lower than the sweet spot. So for whatever reason, early on he squared up some balls, sent them flying, and, and been re- rewarded for it. I don't know that that will continue. 301, if it goes the, f- the 5 or 10 extra feet, just gets it to 311, 312. And that's not in the range where I expect a ton more home runs. So he's just one of those guys that I think is taking advantage of a, seeing the ball well early, and it, we, the, the production should wane. At shortstop, former top draft pick Tim Beckham, now with the Seattle Mariners, has really been raking uh, OPS north of 900 so far this year. Can he keep up his playing time pace uh, because he can keep up his pace with the stick? 
since the, the the piece was written a week ago, and even in the in, even in this past week, he's already showing signs of of no, he can't. And I think we I think we knew the answer was no. The you know the next to follow up is always what is the landing point, and uh, the landing point for me is J.P. Crawford being brought up at some point and taking over the position because I think that was the the plan from the beginning. The past week he's got a 400. Not slugging, but OPS does Beckham. The past two weeks, it's at, it's 704. The past three weeks, it's six it's 660. So he's already slowing down. As are most of the Mariners. Crawford's doing all right on the farm. J.P. Crawford, the the I just mentioned Segura, the player they acquired for Segura. You know, keeping in mind, he's you know for, not so much for fantasy, but for baseball, he's got a slick glove, and the you know whatever he gives from the bat is kind of a a, a bonus. He's got a 7.98 OPS for uh, for Triple A Tacoma, so that's not bad. I don't uh, Tacoma. I don't believe it's it's in a hitters division, uh, you know, uh, league. I don't know that that particular park is all that great. So hitting 2.90, 3.88, isn't terrible for a guy who's supposed to be slick with the glove. So I do think at some point he's 24. I do think at some point we will see Crawford come up and and Beckham start to lose uh, playing time. But right now he's playing. He's not playing very well. He'll go on another heater at some point, but that's that's just what Beckham does. On the plus side for Beckham, his walk rate's up to around 9%, which is a career high, but his strikeout rate has also jumped way up to yeah. just about 32%, which is also pretty close to a career high. Right. Uh, it looks like, to me, what it looks like, Todd, is a guy who's selling out trying to trying to hit the ball hard. And, um, you know, a lot of times when, you, when a player does that, he ends up swinging and missing hard. And uh, that's not always a, a key to playing time and success. Uh, let's right. move to the outfield. Uh, in Cleveland, Tyler Naquin has taken advantage of a pretty, uh, unsettled situation oh. in the outfield, but he hasn't really taken much advantage of it. How thick is the ice that Tyler Naquin is skating on? Yeah, it's it's again, it's, it's more of a process of elimination thing, or or just, there's just not another op, not another option. And even with Carlos Gonzalez now playing and, and being a left uh, left-handed batter, Naquin is still getting the strong side of the platoon. That again, there's no other there's no other options right now. The other option, not so much option, but the other, what down the line, Bradley Zimmer, when he's ready to come back, he heard him, he heard himself on a throw in the spring. Will probably need some time, uh, not just in extended spring, but uh, a rehab in AAA. And keeping in mind too that that Zimmer was trying to this time last year, everybody, not so much everybody, but he was he was thought of to be an up and comer, stolen bases with a little bit of power had a bad year, so he kind of had to reestablish himself. So it's not like an established player is coming back to take Naquin's spot. It's a player that the Indians hope comes back, especially with with the state of their outfield, but it's not a foregone conclusion, so he has to kind of have to earn his way back. But the thing about it is Naquin is not, you know, he's not earning earning the time. Again, he's there just because these Indians, who at this point with, with, with Corey Kluber now, uh, I don't know that they have a timetable yet, but gone for a lot of the season. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what their approach is. Minnesota playing very well. What do they do? It, 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 perhaps if Kluber were, were, were pitching well, et cetera, et cetera, maybe the Indians still go out and make a move for an outfielder. But at this point, you, you might not. They just might. I'm not going to say they're going to rebuild, but they just may play out the string and come back next year with a healthy, you know, with healthy troops. 
And they have a young man. I picked him up in uh, the American League Tout League this week. Uh, Oscar Mercado in AAA is having yes. a really good start, and uh, that could be another option for them. Uh, the question, of course, will be if, they're th- if they are throwing in the towel, there's no real hurry for them to start his service clock. But uh, they also might want to put somebody on the uh, on the team that can excite the fans and get them to come out, watch him steal bases and run the bases. He's got great speed, so that might be something that interests them. Uh, Brian Goodwin of the Los Angeles Angels, sticking with the uh, outfield, has taken advantage of Justin Upton's extended absence through injury, but uh, Upton's supposed to be back at the end of this month or early in June. What happens then to Brian Goodwin? Yeah, uh, Goodwin, as opposed to you know Naquin, a couple of these players that we talked about, is hitting well. He's playing well. He's getting an opportunity uh, to perform, and he's and he's taking advantage of it. And I even I think since I wrote the piece a week ago, he's stuck in a couple of good games. And I think it was uh, earlier in the week, a home run and uh, another big night. So there are the Angels. Again, mentioned Osmus, new manager, although he's a veteran manager. I think he'll try to keep his bat in the lineup a bit. He is sort of he's not sort of, but he's uh, because he's on the same side of the of the swings to the same side of the plate as Cole Calhoun. There's not a natural platoon, if you will, with Calhoun, who is hitting for power, but uh, the the average is still a little bit low. Uh, you know, you're not going to, you know, Mike Trout is going to play if Mike Trout's healthy. That's just the way it is. But I think they'll find some time to get Goodwin's bat in the lineup. Upton, even when he's back, maybe they bring him, you know, two games on, one game off, and and have Goodwin in there against a, uh, a a good right-handed pitcher and give up to the day off. So I think short-term we'll continue to see Goodwin, but you know it's still Justin Upton, right? I mean he's not gonna he's not gonna play for Justin Upton. So AL only, I'm still keeping him around because I think he'll squeeze in enough at bats to at least you know be be you know, in a in a in a league as deep as as an a tout wars or an a labor or any any 12 team AL league i think he'll continue to be a positive contributor but mixed leagues you know use them now start this is where you be proactive though this is where you put someone on your reserve so you're not not so much blindsided but you have the best available replacement for goodwin because it is justin upton and and justin upton will take over Especially since they're paying him like twelve gazillion dollars yeah. a year, and Brian Goodwin's yeah. probably making close to the minimum. And that, sad to say, but uh, in a lot of professional sports, the guy with the biggest paycheck usually ends up being out on the field mm-hmm. because the general manager doesn't want to go explain to the owner why he's paying thirty million dollars for a guy to get pull splinters out of his behind from the bench. Uh, Dexter Fowler of the Cardinals has surprised more than a few fantasy scribes and owners with a very solid rebound season so far, including an on-base percentage right up around 400. How real is his extended playing time pace? Yeah, you know, nice, nice inadvertent segue to a player. Is he a sunk cost? Would the, would the, would the Cardinals put him on the bench if he wasn't performing and play Tyler O'Neill more and, and Jose, Jose Martinez more? Or would they leave Fowler out there because he's getting paid? Thing is, he was earning the playing time, as you suggest, with the 400 OPP and even a higher slugging percentage that he's had in recent years. He's been, uh, he's been, he's had an illness the past week, not an injury, but he's been under the weather, so he's been uh, spotty, spotty playing time the past week. But my original expectation was that he would play himself out of the job, both offensively and defensively. His glove has slipped uh, precipitously, and that's even after. Moving from center to right, it's the the defense is not what it was, and he was never that great defensively to begin with. 
So I just felt between the hitting and the pitching, hitting the pitching, hitting the fielding, both slipping, St. Louis is an organization that would do the right thing. And even though Fowler's getting the money, put him on the bench because they need to win or they want to win. Uh, he's making the decision tough right now. I don't know. I mean, the, the the indicators are that he's, he's it's not fluky. When you have a 400 OBP, you're, you're walking. Those are things we normally look at. We take the name away and we're encouraged. By the end of the season, though, I, I don't know if he can keep it up. He's injury prone. So you ride it out now if you got Fowler cheap or picked him up on waivers because he was available. Enjoy the ride. It's it's supported. What he's doing is supported. I'm I'm just I'm not giving up my Tyler O'Neill uh, you know player yet just because I do think it's a long season. By the end of the season, he will have his moment and he will perform. When I look at at uh, Dexter Fowler, one of the things that puts me a little bit on edge about how likely he is to keep going and and staying in the lineup. I like the on-base percentage too. He's drawing a lot of walks, but his slugging percentage is still, you know, down around 420 or so. And Mm -hmm. even in a juice ball era, he only has one home run so far this year in almost a hundred plate appearances, which translate to what, six or seven for the season if he gets a full season in. And two years ago, the previous juice ball year, he hit 18. And when I look at it, I just say to myself, I don't see any way that unless he does something different that he's going to be able to pick up that many home runs and for anybody who looks at Dexter Fowler and longs for those days of uh, of yore when he was hitting 17 18 home runs stealing 20 bags I think that ship has sailed and even if Dexter Fowler does stay in the lineup I think we need to dampen our expectations about his counting stats yeah especially in Bush Stadium one of the you know we don't think of it as being such a power suppressing park but it is so that's a good point. Maybe maybe I should have been more forceful in my... I came out and said he was going to have a poor season. It's been a good month. I, I, I continue to think so. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe I, 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 I should have done that because that's kind of sort of how I feel. So I'm with you. I'm glad you glad you came out and, and said that, Patrick, because I'm actually in agreement that um, I'm uh, there's a reason I'm keeping my O'Neill, my O'Neill shares. I, I think he will be uh, useful by season's end. And if I'm not mistaken, a Canadian guy. So that's another reason to keep him, especially if a hockey game breaks out. You know what? I I, I joke about it on Twitter. I um I've been I've I'm I'm a reborn Boston Bruins fan. I've watched the last four playoff games, and um uh you know I'm not going to say I'm an expert or anything like that. But I used to be a big hockey fan. I have watched. I, I'm going to be watching the playoffs, and come the fall, we'll see how my schedule is. Maybe I'll become uh in general more of a hockey fan and learn to know the other teams as well. I've gotten back into it over the years. I never was a big hockey fan because the regular season was just so long and boring and, mm. and they clearly weren't trying very hard and everybody knew that you save your uh, you save your energy for the playoff run. And in the playoffs, I love watching uh, the hockey. I think the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs this year have been fantastic. And uh, because of my renewed interest in hockey, I was a fan as a kid and I played, uh, I've been finding out a lot about the advanced metrics in hockey, and they're pretty interesting too. Haven't gotten there yet. I'm still trying to learn the names of the Bruins because I'm watching while doing work, and if I hear a goal, I don't know which team it is because I'm not quite familiar with the names yet. So I hope to get there, though. I mean, it is a uh, it, it always helps in this industry when uh, to have another sport in your 
in your uh, in your in your back pocket if there's a baseball strike. I'm gonna you know not nothing I'm gonna say. I'm gonna be a become a hockey writer in, in two or three years if there's a baseball strike. But it it doesn't hurt. And I'm actually I'm doing it now for enjoyment. But I'd be lying in the back of my mind if I didn't think. Well, if I watch you know half a season, maybe I can start getting into DFS or and you know if I can learn it in a year, maybe I can start doing some hockey analysis because it doesn't hurt to have something else in your quiver. All right, Todd. Thanks a million. Talk to you again in a week. Absolutely, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable! A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it to four and I am stunned Bill I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes and a lot of sports but this one might top almost every other one Baseball HQ Radio And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our weekend pitcher matchups report and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Houston outfielder Jordan Alvarez. And here to tell you all about it is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He combines plus raw strength with explosive hips, has plus bat speed, and has a feel for the ball, allowing him to drive the ball consistently, according to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. But perhaps the key comment from the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst is that 21-year-old Houston Astros outfielder Jordan Alvarez annihilated opposing pitching while at AA Corpus Christi in 2018 before a late-season promotion to AAA Round Rock. Well, guess what? 21-year-old Houston Astros outfielder Jordan Alvarez is now annihilating Pacific Coast League pitching, too, to the tune of a sizzling 386 batting average through his first 23 games. Yeah, we know. It's only 23 games and only 83 at-bats. In other words, it's a very, very small sample size. But here's a tougher stat to ignore. Your Don Alvarez has already launched 12 home runs of those 23 games, including a grand slam on April 16th. Wow. Explosive hips? Yes. Plus bat speed? Check. Feel for the ball? Obviously. Ability to drive the ball consistently? You decide. He's currently batting 386 as a 310 career batting average of the minors, and his 293 minor league batting average in 2018 is equivalent, not projected, but already equivalent 
to a 261 batting average at the major league level, according to the stats and tools available at BaseballHQ.com. Certainly a case could be made for your Don Alvarez to debut in Houston soon. The problem? He's not on the 40-man roster, and there currently appears to be no clear path to playing time in Houston. That's why your Don Alvarez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But wait! A very, very wise man named Rod Chandler once said, Remove the phrase, but he has no path to playing time from your vocabulary. With more than 50% odds of your player hitting the DL, there's almost always a path to playing time. And there are huge potential profits waiting for those who speculate intelligently. Cheers to those who speculate intelligently. And while we're at it, cheers to those who take frequent flyers. Another pretty intelligent guy named Brad Goldman, his April 14th Market Pulse column on BaseballHQ.com, speculated, intelligently, that while there is no apparent path to playing time for your Don Alvarez in Houston at the moment, this bat is worth finding a way to warehouse if possible. So there you have it. We're speculating, intelligently, that your Don Alvarez's bat is a bat worth finding a way to warehouse if possible as our frequent flyer for this week. Cheers! For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups. And here with a scan of three weekend matchups, including a marquee matchup with Zach Greinke in Colorado to face Herman Marquez, is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Looking for a pair of matchups favorable to hitters this weekend? One team has both its Saturday and Sunday starters in negative numbers, and that's the Milwaukee Brewers. They're at their hitter-friendly home in Miller Park, and the batting beneficiaries will be the New York Mets. The Brew Crew's new rotation features the return of Gio Gonzalez on Saturday with a matchup rating of minus 071. On Sunday, Zach Davies features a matchup rating of minus 041. But wait, there's more. The Mets send out Jason Vargas to face Davies on Sunday, and Vargas has the weekend's worst matchup rating of minus 124. So the Brewers batters should join in on a fireworks fiesta for Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo commemorates 2,000 Mexican civilians successfully defending their city of Puebla against 6,000 invading French soldiers sent by Napoleon in 1862. But Mexico's Manny Banuelos is an even more unlikely underdog in our marquee mismatch at hitter-friendly Guaranteed Rate Park on Cuatro de Mayo this Saturday. Banuelos is on the wrong side of this weekend's largest matchup rating differential of 214. He has a matchup rating of minus 071 against Eduardo Rodriguez of the Red Sox and his matchup rating of 143. In 20 innings pitched over six outings, including only two games started, Banuelos has 19 strikeouts, 11 walks, an expected ERA of 423, and a BPV of 39. With a first pitch strike rate of only 53%, there's little hope that Banuelos will lower his whip much from its current 140. Rodriguez has 31 innings pitched in six games started with 35 strikeouts, 12 walks, an expected ERA of 402, a whip of 153, and a BPV of 110. 
Erod's whip should actually be better based on his solid first pitch strike rate of 63% and his unlucky hit rate of 38%. The White Sox do have a run differential advantage over the Red Sox, as Boston is at minus 23 and Chicago is at minus 13. Plus, the Southsiders are 500 at home and 500 versus left-handers, while the Bostonians are four games under 500 on the road and four games under 500 against left-handers. Still, don't get your hopes up too high for a repeat of the 1862 Cinco de Mayo upset. Look for Rodriguez to emerge as King of the Hill in this one. Our marquee matchup is the only one in which both starting pitchers have strong start matchup ratings above one. But we could call it our Sunday surprise. After all, who would expect a marquee matchup in the hitter's heaven of Mile High Coors Field? It's a Blake Street battle of right-handed aces in a National League West rivalry. The D-backs are paying Grenke big greenbacks, and he's earning his keep, as shown by his matchup rating of 109. Colorado counters with Herman Marquez, who has a matchup rating of 113. Arizona has the edge in team stats with a run differential of plus 23, an overall record five games over 500, and a road record also five games over 500. The Rockies have a run differential of minus six, are three games under 500 overall, and two games under 500 at home. In 44 innings pitched over seven games started, the 35-year-old Grenke has a BPV of 145, an expected ERA of 328, and a whip of 095. That whip is aided by a fortunate hit rate of 25%, and though Grenke has four PQS-dominant starts in his past five outings, only one was on the road. The 24-year-old Marquez has had three home starts this season, posting PQS scores of 0, 2, and 3. In 46 innings pitched over seven games started this year, Marquez has a BPV of 131, an expected ERA of 322, and a whip of 102. If ever both starting pitchers had a good chance to put up decent numbers in Denver, Sunday could be the day. Contrary to the typical advice of avoiding Coors Field starts, don't be afraid to go with either Grenke or Marquez on Cinco de Mayo. In addition to Rodriguez and Banuelos, we have another pair of left-handers facing off on Saturday. And like our marquee matchup between Grenke and Marquez, it's another NL West contest. This one is in sunny San Diego, showcasing a set of southpaws with judgment call matchup ratings. The visiting Dodgers give 39-year-old Rich Hill his second start of the season, and Hill carries in a matchup rating of 091. The hometown Padres send out 26-year-old Joey Lucchese, who has a matchup rating of 075. Hill pitched more innings against San Diego than any other team last season, posting an expected ERA of 275 and a whip of 080 before the Padres added Manny Machado this year. Lucchese has thrown 31 innings in six starts so far this season, striking out 34 and walking 10, while posting an expected ERA of 368 and a BPV of 126. An unfortunate hit rate of 37% has combined with a subpar first pitch strike rate of 53% to laden Lucchese with a whip of 145. Still, three of Lucchese's four home starts have been PQS dominant. LA has a far superior run differential of plus 36 to the Friars minus 13, and is one of only two teams with 20 wins through Thursday. Even though San Diego is 9-6 versus teams over 500, it's reasonable to expect Hill to come out on top. To recap, load your lineups with as many Mets and Brewers as you can this weekend, especially on Sunday. 
Look for Eduardo Rodriguez and the Red Sox to best Manny Banuelos and the White Sox in Chicago, Rich Hill to fare better than Joey Lucchese at Petco Park in San Diego, and, if you can believe it, consider Zach Grenke and or Herman Marquez in Colorado's Coors Field. Use the new BaseballHQ.com matchup finder for an eight-day scan of matchup ratings customized with your team's starting pitchers to make more informed choices. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, it's time for our April fantasy quiz. One month is in the fantasy books, so it's our opportunity to let you take some time off from cursing your fantasy teams and have a little fun with the April Master Notes quiz. Here are the rules. There will be 20 questions, 10 about hitters, 7 about starting pitchers, and 3 about relievers. Every question is worth points, but how many points they're worth is entirely up to you. Please phrase all your answers in the form of answers. And if you're James Holzhauer, you just can't play. Wagering on the results with your friends is allowed, but you must skim 20% of the total amount wagered and send it to me in cash. And most importantly, if you think an answer is incorrect, make a careful note of both the question and the incorrect answer, as well as the correct answer and your source for the information. And close all of this in a full-size manila envelope, affix appropriate postage, and then keep it to yourself. I'll ask each question, give you a few seconds to think about your answer, and then give the answer. Are you ready? Let's go. And we'll start with the hitters. Question 1. Using Baseball HQ's mixed 5x5 valuations, five of the top ten batters by dollar value through April were eligible at outfield, led by Cody Bellinger at $58. The other five of the top ten were eligible at shortstop. Only two of the top ten were eligible at positions other than outfield or shortstop. Who were they? The multi-eligible top 10 value hitters were Javier Baez of Chicago, a $31 value so far, who is eligible at second and third as well as short, and Bellinger himself, who is also eligible at first as well as the outfield. Question 2. In April, Joey Votto made news by popping up to first base for the first time in his career. Among hitters with 100 or more plate appearances in April, which two hitters had the most infield pop-ups? The anti-Vottos in April were Philadelphia third baseman Michael Franco and Angels D.H. Albert Pujols, who had nine pop-ups apiece. Close behind at eight pop-ups were Jose Altuve, Adam Jones, and Jurickson Profar. Nineteen hitters had at least 100 plate appearances and no pop-ups. Question 3. Miami catcher Jorge Alfaro had five home runs in April, but there was something unmatched in the month about all of them. What was it? Well, according to Baseball Info Solutions, all five of Alfaro's dingers were hit to the opposite field. He was the only hitter with five-plus home runs who went oppo every time. Tommy Pham was four for four in oppo home runs in April. Question four. San Francisco outfielder Kevin Pillar did something odd four different times in April that allowed him to reach base without affecting his on-base percentage. What did he do? (laughs) 
Pilar reached base four times in April via catcher interference. Only four other players had even one catcher interference call in the month. Catcher interference counts as an official plate appearance, but is excluded from both the numerator and the denominator in calculating on-base percentage. Question 5. Of all the players with six or more stolen bases in April, three of them were not caught stealing. The top two thieves were Tim Anderson of the White Sox, who had 10 stolen bases with no caught stealings, and Jose Ramirez of Cleveland, who was 9 for 9. Who was the third? The third perfect stealer was Milwaukee all-round star Christian Yelich, who went 6 for 6 in April. Question 6. Speaking of caught stealings, five base runners were caught three times each in April. Bellinger, Billy Hamilton, Terrence Gore, and Rugnet Odor were four of them. Who was the fifth, and how was he different from everyone else in the group? Jeff O'Neill of the Mets had three caught stealings in April. The difference between him and the rest? He had no successful stolen bases. He went 0 for 3 in his attempts. Red light. Question 7. Three hitters had 30 or more line drives in the month. Bellinger again was one, leading the way with 33 line drives, while hot starting Domingo Santana of Seattle had exactly 30, which Houston Astro also had 30 line drives. Well, did you guess George Springer, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman? Nope, nope, and nope. The other line drive machine in April was the Astros' Yuli Gurriel, whose 30 line drives produced 18 hits, a surprisingly low 60% hit rate. Question 8. 21 hitters had two bunt hits in April, and two hitters, Adam Eaton and Colton Wong, had three bunt hits apiece. But who led the majors with four bunt hits in April? The small ball specialist was Washington outfielder Victor Robles, who had four bunt hits in seven tries. Question 9. Most leagues award position eligibility when a player gets five games in a position during a current year. But six players got five games at three different positions in the month. Two of them were Dodgers. Who were they? And bonus points if you get all the others as well. The flexible Dodgers were Max Muncie, who played 20 games at first base, 8 at second, and 7 at third, and Chris Taylor, who played 7 at second, 8 at short, and 17 in the outfield. The other batters with five or more games at three positions in April were Jeff McNeil of the Mets, second, third, and outfield, Daniel Robertson of Tampa, second, third, and short, David Fletcher of the Angels, second, third, and the outfield, and Chris Owings of Kansas City, second base, shortstop, and outfield. Question 10. Washington shortstop call-up Carter Keeboom had two runs scored and two RBI in April. What was unusual about that? Well, Keeboom got his entire run production for the month from two solo home runs. Ian Kinsler of San Diego also got all two of his RBIs on solo shots, but he also managed to score five runs in other ways. Kevin Plowecki, Greg Bird, Chad Wallach, Jacoby Jones, Steve Wilkerson, and Troy Tulowitzki all had one home run and one RBI apiece, and Tulo's lone run scored came from his dinger. So that's all the hitter questions for April. Let's move ahead to starting pitchers. Question 1. 
Among the 86 starters who threw at least 500 pitches in the month, only one threw more than 70% strikes. Called strikes, fouls, and whiffs. Who was this sensational rookie? Well, you probably guessed that the strike thrower par excellence was Chris Paddock of San Diego. He threw 516 pitches in April, of which 366, 70.9% were strikes, and the other 150 were balls. If we use rounding, both Max Scherzer and Marco Gonzalez, who were both at 69.9%, could be said to have joined the 70% club as well. The median, by the way, was 63.8% around where you'll find Zach Wheeler, Jonathan Gray, Jose Quintana, guys like that. Question two. On the flip side, which starting pitcher with 500-plus pitches had the lowest strike percentage? The wildest of the wild bunch was Brad Keller of Kansas City, who threw fewer than 57% of his pitches for strikes. Six other starters were under 60%. Julius Chassin, Luis Castillo, Robbie Ray, Zach Godley, Julio Tehran, Adam Wainwright, and Aaron Sanchez. Question 3. Three starting pitchers threw more than 700 pitches in April. The Astros starters Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole tied for second with exactly 717 pitches apiece. But who led the majors in pitches thrown in April? The workhorse was Cleveland's Trevor Bauer, who fired 795 pitches in April, throwing 62% for strikes. Question 4. Among the 19 starting pitchers with 150 or more adjusted batters faced, which is total batters faced, minus catcher interference and bunts, which pitcher had the most net positive ratio outcomes? Soft and medium hip grounders and fly balls, plus strikeouts, less line drives and hard hit grounders and fly balls, less walks, less hit by pitches. The most efficient starter at getting positive ratio outcomes was Steven Strasburg of Washington, with 73% positive outcomes against 27% negative, for a net pro of plus 45. The high-volume stinkers were Lance Lynn and Mike Leak, both at 10% net pro. Question 5. Among starting pitchers with at least 100 adjusted batters faced, three, all past Cy Young winners, had strikeout percentage minus walk percentage of at least plus 30. Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer were second and third. Who led the way at plus 32? The leader in strikeout minus walk percentage was last year's American League Cy winner, Blake Snell. He had 38% strikeouts and 6% walks. If you are wondering, DeGrom had the highest strikeout rate at 39%, with Cole and Snell one point back. The lowest walk rate among the high-volume starters belonged to Hyunjin Ryu of Los Angeles, who walked just 2% of his 107 adjusted batters faced. Question 6. With the explosion in home runs, high flyball pitchers have become, for many owners, players to avoid. And with Baltimore pitchers on a pace to allow a record number of home runs, a lot of owners are avoiding them, too. But really, the pitchers to avoid are those who give up hard flyballs. And not surprisingly, it was a Baltimore starting pitcher who led Major League Baseball in allowing those hard-hit flies. Who was it? The 
Baltimore starter with the high hard hit fly ball rate was David Hess at 19% of adjusted batters faced, followed by Chris Archer, Marco Estrada, and still another Oriole, Andrew Kashner, at between 16 and 17%. Question 7. The four wins leaders in April, with five each, have something in common that would leave them later in a list than four win starters Jake Arietta, Trevor Bauer, Jose Barrios, Andrew Kashner, and Yanni Chirinos, but ahead of four win starters Frankie Montas and Justin Verlander. What do the five win starters have in common, and how is the list sorted? The list was sorted alphabetically by surname, and all four of the five-win starter surnames begin with the letter G. Domingo Herman, Tyler Glasnow, Marco Gonzalez, and Zach Greinke. Those are the starting pitcher questions for April. Let's bring this baby home with three quiz questions about relief pitchers. Question 1. Keone Kayla, Willie Peralta, and Joe Kelly were April's top three in what relief pitching category? These three relievers were April's leaders in blown saves. Kayla blew four saves in April, one more than Peralta and Kelly. Question 2. Josh Hader led all relief pitchers with 31 strikeouts in April, more than 126 starters. Numbers 2 and 4 on the relief pitcher strikeout list came from the National League East. Who were they? Nick Anderson of Miami was number two on the list of relief pitcher strikeout leaders with 27 punchouts, while Seth Lugo of the Mets was fourth with 24. In between was San Diego closer Kirby Yates, who had 25. Question 3. 17 relievers logged more than five saves apiece, but only one had single-digit strikeouts. Who was that? Blake Parker of Minnesota had six saves and only eight Ks. Well, that's our quiz for April. If you did well, brag about it to your buddies. You earned it. If not, well, we'll have the next Master Notes monthly fantasy quiz for May in early June. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Jason Collette from Rotowire. Jason's one of the best analysts in the business and just a great guy on top of it. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups report was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well and as always to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. 
where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you get your pods. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring guest expert Larry Schechter from Winning Fantasy Baseball. That's Larry Schechter on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.